You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. Airline Pilot Guy episode 397. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 24th of October, 2019. In today's episode, an Alaska Airlines flight overruns the runway, killing a passenger. And Qantas makes history. More news, your feedback, and in today's Plane Tales, pursuit across the channel. So get all settled in. Tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 397 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, Emmy Award-winning TV and radio reporter, currently the, at the number one all-news station in the nation, 1010 Winds, New York City. Welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, uh, podcasting aviation for more than 10 years now, covering the latest aviation news and answering your feedback. I'm Captain Jeff, former U.S. Air Force pilot and currently a captain for a major U.S. legacy airline based in Atlanta, and I like to call it Acme Airlines. and also, today, we are joined by, from his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, former captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Well, good evening, Captain Jeff, and uh, the rest of the crew uh, will be pitching up in dribs and drabs, probably more dribs and drabs. Great to uh, be on the show here from the United Kingdom, and uh, I'm looking forward to a good one. Yes, dribbling our way through aviation, and also joining us from the Main Man Micah Kitchen Studio in Portland, Maine, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy airline. He's Captain Dana. Well, fantastic afternoon to everybody up here in the uh, wonderful studios of Main Man Micah. Enjoying it. It's an absolutely perfect fall day up in here in the main area. However, we're very happy to be in here and podcasting this wonderful uh, show with you guys tonight. Are you saying we, for some reason, like maybe we also have from the main man, Micah Kitchen Studio, sitting right next to Captain Dana, aviation podcaster, radio personality, and APG community member extraordinaire, main man, Micah. Hey, everyone. Thanks for having me on, Jeff. Hi, Nick. Great to have Dana up here, back in the kitchen studios. You know, it's the first time he and I have done a show from here, but... But Jeff, as you know, the kitchen studio always has lots of snacks and lots of fun. And so here we are for another Airline Pilot Guy show. Yes, indeed. Well, so I, happy I, to... I sh- yes? Go ahead. No. I was going to say, and I even showed up and he even called me honey. He gave me this really fancy bottle of local honey. Ah. So. He, well, he called he was, me honey and I had nothing to do with the stuff in the bottle. Uh, see? He, yeah. had, he has this special honey for me. Yes. And he also called me darling. And he... 
Yeah. Well, we you know me. So some people call me a podcast squatter, but in some ways I'm a podcast slower. I won't say it. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, uh, later in the show, we're going to talk about what we've been up to between or since the last episode, but we're going to get right on into the news right now as soon as I can find the button to push. Here we go. Stand by for news. From the Aviation Herald, a Penn Air, Peninsula Air, or Peninsula Airways, Saab 2000, on behalf of Alaska Airlines, was flying or performing flight 3296 from Anchorage, Alaska to Un-Alaska. With 38 passengers and three crew, they overran the end of the runway while landing on Un-Alaska's Dutch Harbor Runway 13 at 1734 local time. The aircraft came to a stop about 125 meters, or about 400 feet, past the end of the runway partially hanging down a slope into the sea. The left-hand propeller blades had contacted some obstacles. Blades impacted and penetrated the fuselage. One passenger died as a result of the accident. Two passengers received serious injuries. Five received minor injuries. One injured passenger was flown out to Anchorage. A total of 11 passengers were taken to a hospital. The NTSB has started an investigation, and um, a local or local authorities reported that all members of a youth swim team on board the aircraft and their, um, what do you call them? Um, the people that... Co coaches? Uh, no. Uh, um, Chap chaperones. That's it. Chaperones. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. We, we're at 100% now. Yes. Well, for a very brief moment, yes. uh, the chaperones uh, and the swim team, uh, none were injured or, or killed on that uh, flight. So... Um, Let's see. A ground observer reported the aircraft had attempted landing on runway 13, overflying Hog Island, first flying with the wind, but went around and positioned for another approach to runway 13 again. And the with the wind, and by the way, at the, well, about 14, 15 minutes uh, past the time uh, that we think that they were attempting the approaches, the wind was 300 degrees, 21, gusting 27 knots. Uh, they touched down, but did not stop. There was deceleration, however, again, according to a ground observer. Unalaska resident Randy Batten told KTUU, I guess that must be an, a local uh, news affiliate, he and his wife were walking their dog along the road that runs near the runway when they saw an approaching plane. It was a little windy, but, it didn't, uh, but I didn't think it was that bad. For some reason, he aborted his first attempt to land and flew over us to come around again to make another attempt. He said he and his wife then drove the short distance to their home, which overlooks the airport. They arrived home just as the crash happened. We heard a screech of rubber and a bunch of scraping of metal, and we knew right away it was probably that plane that we had uh, seen doing the flyover on the first attempt. A medevac aircraft departed Cold Bay, Alaska, about 90 minutes after the, the occurrence and landed in Alaska about two hours and 20 minutes after the occurrence. The medevac aircraft departed for Anchorage after 90 minutes on the ground. 
and uh, that was the um, aircraft that carried one of the injured passengers to Anchorage for further treatment. Uh, so, okay, I'll stop reading the uh, article from uh, Aviation Herald, and we'll just start talking about this. Um, so the first thing to know is that, you know, this, this uh, airport, this island, is part of the Aleutian uh, chain of islands on the Bering Sea. And I have a little bit of experience flying um, uh, a di to a different island there, um, Shemya. Uh, there was an, I think there still is an Air Force base there, but at least there was when I was flying uh, back in the 80s. And uh, it's all, the weather there is always horrible, basically. Um, you know, bad ceilings, visibilities, very high winds. And it's very, it's a very challenging place to fly. And uh, the only approach, the only instrument approach they have, as far as I know, going into this airport is an RNAV approach, a GPS, RNAV GPS-B. And it comes in from the north. And I included the approach plate in the show notes, guys. Did you see that? Uh, were you able to open that up? I uh, don't think I scrolled down that far. Okay. Well, anyway, um, or there might be a link or something there nope. that you can uh, open I, it I up. I don't see him. Okay. Hmm. Nick, do you see anything? Not yet. Hmm. All yes, right. There's a PDF there. Yeah, it's a PDF, and uh, it should open up, and you can see the uh, RNAV GPSB. It approaches the island from the north, and then it comes in, and as you'll see on the approach plate, very high terrain. Uh, all the Aleutian Islands, as far as I know, are very... I guess it's part of a, a volcanic, um, volcanic formed uh, geographic landmass, um, the whole uh, Aleutian chain. And um, the airport is like just a few feet above sea level. So essentially sea level. And just to the northwest of the airport, northeast of the airport, are, is a hill, I guess we could call it, 1,700 feet. Down here where I live, that would be a mountain. And that's the uh, that's something that's uh, depicted in white. Uh, now, when we start looking at the uh, brown shaded areas, which are all very, very close to this Dutch Harbor airport, um, some of these peaks are going up to 7,000 feet and above, I believe. So that kind of gives you the, the picture there that uh, this is a, a very difficult place to get into. And the if you were to land into the wind... Uh, you would have to do the circling approach to the southwest of the airport because of the peaks to the northeast of the airport. And it had to be a very tight approach because, again, you have terrain just to the south of the airport as well. So apparently they made the decision um, to come in uh, from the northwest and land to the southeast with the wind. And as I mentioned, um, not too long after this incident occurred, the winds were gusting to 27 knots. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they were that high when they landed, but I'm sure they had some sort of a tailwind there. The runway is only 4,500 feet long by 100 feet wide, so it's uh, not a lot of runway. Uh, the airplane, though, is a turboprop, a Saab 2000. I don't know, um, Dana, you probably flew something that was very similar in performance when you were at, at the uh, regional airlines. Well, actually, I was working for a regional airline, uh, an airline called Business Express that had the uh, Saab 340, which mm -hmm. is the smaller version of this. Mm -hmm. And what's going through my mind is a 4,500-foot runway is more than enough space, uh, especially with the ability to go to, into beta mm -hmm. to stop the aircraft. I think what what there are a couple probable uh, causal factors here. Of course, the winds, obviously, 
uh, cause them to uh, be a little, you know, fast on the ground speed. And also, if they had touched down late in the touchdown zone, uh, certainly would would cause them to overrun the uh, the runway. So. Yeah, because maybe with a really high tailwind, you'd tend to float longer down the runway than you would normally be used to. And your speed over the ground is much, you know, it's going to be, it, it, your perceived speed is going to be relatively normal, but you, your actual speed over the ground, because you get a tailwind pushing you down the runway, is, is going to be a little hotter. And uh, so I think uh, that's probably what happened. Not only that, there was a uh, light rain so i don't know if there was uh any issues with the moisture being on the runway but of course that would affect stopping distance as well mm-hmm. and not to throw any irony on it but taking a look at the photographs here in the uh in the uh in, in the attachment you gave us here just to describe it you've got the picture of the uh the saab 2000 just uh, off the end of the runway and ironically off the left hand wing there's a stop sign that oh. stopped just before Mm. <laughs> yeah, this, this just, I'm, I just had to point out that irony. It is but, yeah, iron, ironic, yes. It, it's sure. very ironic because right at the leading edge of the right, what would be the right wing, I'm sorry, I'm looking at the left side of the photo, mm-hmm. of the right wing is a stop sign right in front of the leading edge of the wing, out towards the wing tip. You know, so, when I first looked at, looked at these photos, um, I did not see the left side of the airplane where the the blades had penetrated the fuselage. And I was kind of scratching my head looking at it thinking, well, how in the world could anybody have died in this accident or even be seriously or critically injured? And then, of course, when I read from the aviation article um, news source, the fact that the, um, the left uh, propeller uh, or propeller blades had hit something when they were doing the excursion, and then that forced the separation of the blades and into the fuselage. And then I saw that, that picture that I have listed uh, at, at the top. And I went, oh, okay, now I understand why that happened. Yeah, and I, I think probably, honestly, on, on purpose, they did not publish any photos of the other side of the aircraft because I'm sure there's some uh, gruesome uh, scene there. So yeah. Did I miss something? Or uh, are we, we looking at the other side of the aircraft? Yeah, we're looking at the yeah. left side, and I don't see anything gruesome there. I just see some marks where the propellers entered. Uh, I don't see the left side of the aircraft at all. Oh, okay. So it's the very first thing that I have in um, on the article before you see. Any oh, writers. okay. The very first photo. I was down in the bottom photos. I'm sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's there's very little. Uh, right. Hmm. But at least you can see where the marks are, where the uh, yeah. propellers did penetrate the cabin. Um, I was going to ask, because um, I don't know if I missed something. Do we know why they came in with a tailwind and they didn't come in from the other angle? Well, so this is one of those places that um, it's a very uh, difficult place to come into because you have very little room to do a circling maneuver. It's a, it's a visual maneuver. And in fact, before they can even start the approach, they have to contact a qualified um, weather observer at the airport. And he has to describe what is, or he or she has to describe what the weather conditions are right at the airport, because I guess they can be so different than even the weather that's out over the open water when you're, when they're starting the approach. And, uh, so it may, we don't know all the details yet. Uh, they may have said, you know, there's some obscuration, some fog south of the airport. Do not recommend a circle approach to the North, uh, West runway. And, uh, and so they had to make that judgment call whether to try to maneuver in those uh, very difficult uh, conditions or whether to go ahead and attempt an approach with a, a big tailwind. So 
because uh, I'm used to operating with a very strict tailwind limit for landing and takeoff, come to that. Mm-hmm. Dana, um, what is it likely to have been for this aircraft? Well, it's almost a dead tailwind on it. Yeah, no, it, no. What is the limit? What is oh, the I tailwind think, I think limit? it's also 10 knots. I'm not an expert on that airplane, but I believe it's it's no more than what the standard is. Yeah, we don't know what the uh, what the limitation is for the manufacturer, and nor do we know what the limit is uh, for their uh, standard operating policy. Uh, so um, maybe somebody out there listening knows the, that information, but we don't have any of that information in our news sources. Yeah. So I would imagine, though, it, it couldn't be as high as twenty seven knots. That's just crazy. But no, no, and, and yeah. Uh, I mean, it, it, we we do uh, harp on about it, and it has been one of the aviation industry's biggest targets uh, to prevent runway excursions, uh, which is why there's been such emphasis in the last few years about uh, strict calculations of uh, uh, stopping distances and applying big factors to ensure there's a big safety margin and things, yet we still get people running off runways and it's just a bit sad we need to just continue to drive at home i guess yep so if we get any updates on this investigation we'll certainly talk about it on this show and before we move on to the next news item look at here what do i see from her lakeside studio and a lovely cottage on the lake in south carolina We have a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Staff. Hey, Captain Jeff. Uh, Yeah, make sure I unmuted myself there for a second. Um, Glad to be here. Sorry for being a little late. Seems to be a theme with me recently for the show. I apologize. You're here sooner than you normally are. This is true. Yeah. This is true. Good to see you. Good discussion on that uh, last news item there. I've just been sitting here listening and um, agreeing. So, well, because you're late, Doctor Steph, as per usual, you missed the fruit cup course. Hmm. Mm. We've moved on to the main course. Excellent. Oh, I get it. Main man. Main man. Yeah. Got it. Uh, nice to see you, Micah, and Captain Nick, and Captain Dana. Hi. 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 What about me? I said hi to you already. Oh, did you? Okay, I've already forgotten. He likes it twice. <laughs> you know, you know uh, what he's like. Yeah, uh, at well, least. Let's not go there. On. <laughs> so early in the show, at least. Okay. We'll answer to our question, by the way. Pardon me. I found the answer to our question. Okay. Tailwind. About tailwind minus thousand feet to six thousand feet pressure alt- altitude. Max tailwind is fifteen knots per manufacturer. Oh. And above 6,000 pressure altitude is 10 knots. Okay. Well, this was definitely uh, uh, close to sea level. So that would be the 15 knot restriction? 15 knot restriction. But it was right there. I mean, we're talking a matter of minutes. Yeah. So again, you know, if you look at the previous hour's observation, um, I don't recall. Four knots. At four. So, yeah. So where on... Exactly where was that wind, inst- you know, the instantaneous readout when they were actually making those landing attempts? We don't know. So We don't know. Uh, I'm sure that the uh, investigators will be able to pull the flight data recorder and, and get the exact, um, you know, airspeed and ground speed and be able to calculate or estimate what that what that wind was at the time of the incident. But uh, we don't have that information. Legally available. for us, it was whatever the tower told us. So mm-hmm. they'll be pulling the tower tapes as well. 
By the way, uh, um, Capnal in the chat room says for his 320 and 321, he can land up to 15 knots. So uh, that's obviously uh, a bit more for that aircraft because, mm-hmm. I don't know, perhaps he's got very good brakes or perhaps he, you hold open the windows and hold your hands out. I don't know. <laughs> that like might that. be part of it. But we yeah. do. Um, Better pilots. At Acme Airlines, we do our, you know, basically for all fleets, the maximum tailwind is 10 knots. However, there are a couple of places that we fly, uh, for instance, some of the Caribbean islands where the runway is positioned in a way where the terrain is more of a critical uh, thing than the tailwind uh, component. And in those cases, there may be individual uh, exceptions to the 10 knot rule. I'm I'm not sure how high it can go because I really don't have any experience in flying in some of the places where they have the exception. Do, Dana, do you know, is it uh, as much as 20 knots maybe in some of these places? I'd have to pull it up on the, uh, on, on, you know, on the EFB. Uh, uh, you know, EFB and special pages, but right. someplace like St. Martin would first be the first mm-hmm. place comes to mind. Yeah, I think there are, are higher limits on some of those islands. Yeah, sure. And as far as the actual aircraft limitation, I'm not sure what that would be for the Mad Dog. I'm not sure we have that information, actually. We just have our company's standard operating procedure. Well, limitations. limitation does say uh, maximums 10 knots unless mm-hmm. specifically uh, allowed by company page. Okay. Very good. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, we'll catch up with you, Steph, and the rest of all of us uh, once we get to our chit-chat section of the show. But in the meantime, mm-hmm. let's keep on moving on to the next item in the news folder, and this one is a positive story for a change. Um, Qantas flight makes history by touching down in Sydney after flying 19 hours nonstop from John F. Kennedy, New York. Uh, It was flight 78-79, 19 hours and 16 minutes. It's the first of three flights reaching the, uh, researching the health of passengers on ultra, ultra, ultra long haul flight, I would call it. If flights are successful, commercial services could start as early as 2022. What a cute flight number. Very clever. 7879. Wasn't a 787-9? Oh, very good. I didn't Mm -hmm. pick up on that at all. It was a 787-9. I think somewhere in the article it said something about the fact that they are planning on using um, perhaps the uh, Airbus A350-1000 or another airplane, another Boeing airplane, maybe the 787-1000 model. Is there such thing? I think there is. The longer version of the um, Dreamliner. Anyway, I'm not mm-hmm. sure about that. But uh, there were two other airplanes that were mentioned um, in another article that I was looking at. That uh, there are actually, if this proves to be a successful test, uh, they're going to use a, a, a little bit different airplane but I could be wrong about that because it is the APG show. Um, we'll work on that 50% later on. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And we'll talk about the fact that you think that you'll bring it up to 60%. I So I thought I saw an article and I'm just trying to remember um, and mixed in with my busy work week here mm-hmm. where they were looking at um, uh, upcoming aircraft. So the 777X and then additional versions of the A350. That is, that's the one I think they did mention yeah. now. Very good. You did. You brought us to at least sixty percent. Thank you, Steph. Yeah, I'll try. Um, all right. Uh, I'm feeling dizzy. <laughs> <laughs> I, well, I mean, you know, I was trying not to uh, 
be too upsetting for Nick. So just Nick. sneak that in there. It's a okay, rarefied man. atmosphere of 60%. <laughs> Yay. Now, don't worry. It won't be long before we're back below 50. Oh, I was going to say, there's only one direction from here. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, the article goes on to talk about the flights and the fact that they have various monitors on uh, pilot crew, cabin crew, and also several of the passengers, and including data collected uh, weeks before this flight, I guess, to get a good baseline for their normal um, vital signs, I guess, um, and their sleep patterns and that kind of thing. There's also a picture of the I love the exercise room here. It's basically the galley. <laughs> They're squatting down in the galley. Makes shift. Makes shift. <laughs> I thought maybe it was somebody lost their uh, contact lens, but um, maybe they're doing exercising. I don't know. Yeah, that's one thing, Nick, that you don't have to worry about um, not wearing contact lenses. You don't have to worry that's about trying true. to find it on the ground, right? That's very true. And I also don't have to worry about doing one of these 19-hour flights. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I'll never have to worry about doing that e either. Mm. Strangely, I think I'd be okay. I, well, I, we have a mm, feeling yeah. that you would be. Yeah, well, in business class staff, of course you're going to be okay. Those there, are sitting way in the back. You is know? there another yeah. way? In yeah. steerage. What, you what know? is this? Steerage? <laughs> Lying down, having a shower every hour or two. You know, <laughs> the rest of the world class. Because, yeah. but ma'am, yes, I'm taking a shower. Yes, but here's your glass of champagne. To be fair, I have taken <laughs> not 19 hours, but I've done 13 hours in economy. So I'm. Your, yes. your, your frame is much more conducive to. <laughs> I was going to also a, say that, yeah, at your size, you know, if you're looking at people like me and Dana, you know, a little different. We're sitting at that. a kitchen table and we're uncomfortable because. <laughs> <it's laughs> you know? <laughs> we're uncomfortable looking at you sitting at the kitchen table. Well, I can't explain you. For well, that. Just, just guess where my hand is. Yeah, <laughs> I don't want to. <laughs> Okay. Did, did anyone else catch this? That they landed with a quote unquote a comfortable seventy minutes of fuel left. I don't think after crossing the entire Pacific Ocean that I would say that I would be very comfortable with only an hour, roughly an hour of fuel left. But, on the but look at all the places they were flying over on the way to New York, or vice versa. I guess you're looking at the one from New York to uh, City. Yeah, it's a little bit different going that direction. You're right. But Not I'm also wondering if that 70 minutes of fuel, when they said that, if they meant they had 70 minutes of flying time or if that's a 70 minutes, including the reserve. Big difference. Yeah, know. or you know, plus reserve is the question. Yeah, yeah that's true. Because then there'd be 45 minutes in addition to the 70 minutes. Then, you know, my comfort level will get a lot higher. Mm -hmm. But coming across the Pacific Ocean, um, yeah, obviously I'm having to calculate the whole way over. You know, as you get closer to Australia, your uh, landing options become somewhat minute, I believe, mm -hmm. unless you're South Pacific Islands. Yeah, but it, it happens multiple times every day, and they're yeah. pretty good, pretty used to handling it, and they don't come in with a lot of uh, reserves, any of them, uh, Dana. So, yeah, I think you'll find that it's nothing special. They had a lot more reserves than that AN-12 that crashed in Ukraine last week. Yeah, yeah. yeah. just a little bit. Hmm. All right. Well, congratulations, Qantas, and uh, hopefully the uh, next uh, two, three, whatever flights that they're going to do will prove to be successful. And I will not be found on that flight. Uh, if you're looking for more test subjects, I'd be happy to uh, offer my services there. Oh, how nice of you. <laughs> yeah, if, if you get a parachute, I'd be very happy to test it out as long as I get a parachute over someplace like Texas. You know, after about <laughs> three hours, I'm done. If you go to Perth, I'll I'll give it a go, but not Sydney, thanks. Yeah, you could go see your dad. Hello. I don't blame you. Exactly. You'd probably have a balloon operator coming there to attack you. 
Oh, yeah. Um, uh, well, mm-hmm. Now, that'll never happen because they'll never be able to fly in the right direction <laughs> to come find me. Yeah. <laughs> Grant, we are waiting for your response. Yes, to, uh, yes. That, please, that Grant, please, yeah. please. I can you know, only assume at that the mercy of everything. Uh, I can only assume that he's crafting it very carefully mm-hmm. at this moment. <laughs> Not that we're going to need it, but Steph, do you have your recorder going? It is going. Awesome. Okay. I started it about two minutes ago. Okay, excellent. Okay, yeah, I did a whole plain tale about balloons and things today. So yeah, I'm I'm appeasing the balloon. You're trying to I, yeah, people. Sorry, well, that's not balloon. Back in their good graces. Aviators, yes, balloon aviators. Yeah, yeah that's and another way of. If you're listening putting. to the audio only, he did use air quotes when he did. No, he actually didn't. Just kidding. <laughs> Trying to get him back in trouble. I know. Nick's doing a story about balloonatics. <laughs> exactly right. Thank you, Micah. I need you to write me a script. Item C: Air Baltic replaces 50 engines on its Airbus A220-300s in two years. I'm thinking, what? Well, and he has two engines. <laughs> no. How long has his airplane been around? 48. Well, let me tell you, Steph. Good question. The airline said the engine replacements were conducted for different reasons, including scheduled maintenance. Uh, sure. Air Baltic took delivery of its first A220-300 jets in December of 2016. December 2016, December 2017, December 2018, and this is November or October. Wow, I'm ahead of myself. Yeah. October 2019. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Yeah, so not quite three years for the oldest ones. Uh, the Baltic carrier is the launch customer of the type. The Latvian company is also the largest operator of A220-300s with 20 of them. They added the 14th A220-300 at the end of 2018, so two years after they started flying them. Each aircraft is equipped with Pratt & Whitney's two pure power PW1500G geared turbofan engines. This means that Air Baltic had to conduct almost two replacements per engine on every aircraft in the first two years. It does well, not seem to me like... I was going to say, 20 aircraft, 50 engines. Okay. Yeah. Can I ask the important question? What is the important question, Dana? Why were they... <laughs> at what point did they discover that they need to change the engine? Hopefully it was on the ground and not in flight when it failed. Well, I think they did have some flight in-flight failures. Doesn't say that here, but, but okay. I don't know that for sure. I know that the uh, the A220-100 has, with Swiss, has had some in-flight shutdowns. And uh, that's why they temporarily grounded their fleet of however many they had. I think 15 or something like that. And then they did some inspections on the jets or the engines. And then they, uh, the temporary grounding uh, was lifted. And they weren't out for very long or grounded for very long. And I thought I read in that article that uh, that it didn't affect the A220-300s. And I'm thinking, oh, they must not be having any issues with the engines. And then I saw this. Oh, no, they are having issues with that engine. It's a different version of the PW1500G. Well, let's, let's bear in mind, the geared turbofan is a new style of engine, a new technology. And, uh, and we're, you know, they're working on it. And I'd very, be very curious to know if our friend Max Flight knows anything about this or has any comments about it because mm-hmm. he, uh, he worked with those. But um, having grounding aircraft or changing out engines based on a new engine isn't really very unique if you think about the, uh, the Trent 900 and the 787s and uh, brand new engines. So 
um, yeah, there, there are issues with new engines sometimes. And yeah. I'm sure that, you know, they'll get it right and everything is going to be fine pretty soon. And I do well, agree with Max Flight, who is in the chat room, the YouTube chat room. Uh, he says, those numbers don't quite sound right. And I agree. Yeah. They just sound way too... Well, you know, we talk Way about too our, few. Our there 50%. are a lot more engines than those, surely. <laughs> What'd you say? We talk, about our, we talk about our 50% uh, accuracy rate. Yeah. Um, there was an, some other questions in this article uh, about uh, the A220-300 um, coming from a European manufacturer. Yeah. So I'm, I guess if versus... you consider the fact that technically it's an Airbus 220, although we know it's a Bombardier C-Series. And the it's a Canadian manufacturer, not a European manufacturer. But I don't know. Are we getting into it's semantics? A, it's Probably. a Canadian manufacturer that is owned by a European company that is manufactured in the USA. There you go. There you go. How more? How much more convoluted can we get? We I'm just try. gonna. Make it's like general, owning, owning owning the seven one seven and saying that the MD ninety five is really a seven one seven. Right. When claiming yeah. it's a Boeing aircraft when it really isn't. That is Just like the the A220 is not a, a not an Airbus product. It really is a Bombardier product, and uh, it's just owned by Airbus now. Well, a just C like series the, by any, a C series by any other name. Yes, and just like the B17G model that crashed at Bradley a few weeks back uh, is a Boeing B17. However, it was actually made by McDonnell Douglas. That particular model. And 3,000 others. McDonnell Douglas. Douglas. Or Douglas, you're right. I keep saying McDonnell Douglas, but McDonnell wasn't together with Douglas at that point, were they? No, he was still at the farm. Uh, I just want to make a general comment. Very, very clever. Just a general comment about uh, the latest generations of engines. Not only do we have the aircraft manufacturers uh, wanting to cut uh, weight down to an absolute minimum, so they're using new materials. Uh, we've also got the engine manufacturers trying to do that and create more thrust and uh, make their engines more economical. They really are stretching the design limits of the current generation uh, of engines and building and stretching into the future. You know, they're, they're hoping for improvements, but I think uh, the reason we're getting so many of these failures is because in the old days, engines were pretty much built out of cast iron and uh, you didn't have a lot of the design restrictions they do now on uh, the weight and the technology they're trying to uh, push forward. So I think it's inevitable we're going to get teething problems with these engines. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it'd be nice to see more of them getting through without hassles. I mean, there are some engines that are proving to be very reliable, but there are some significant problems with uh, others. That is true. You know, they just need to put the JTAD-219 on that engine, on that airplane, and it will be fine. And then reheat it, because that would be even finer. <laughs> yes, that was yes. suggested, actually, by one of our yes. listeners. Yes, <laughs> oh, that was a very good idea. like that. That would push that little jet like crazy. Woo! Woohoo! Mm -hmm. It's true. All right, uh, item D. Uh, we have an update um, to the story regarding the Austral Airways, uh, the pilots that were uh, videotaping slash taking pictures of the fireworks of the River Plate uh, Stadium in, outside of, um, was it Buenos Aires, I think? Yeah. Yep. Yes. Uh, here is Marcus Fabio, captain for a major airline in Brazil. 
on episode 396, you guys talked about, I guess that was our last episode, the, uh, the pilots who were filming and taking pictures. In Brazil, this is not acceptable, and for sure, both pilots will be in trouble with the aviation authorities and the comp- or the aviation authority and the company as well. I follow you guys um, up and love this podcast. Success to you all and safe flights, Marcus. Thank you, Marcus, for sending in the update, um, being right there, you know, on the pulse of what what's happening down there. Yep. Good news. Yep. Okay. Not for them though. Uh, no, I think they're for the high jump. Yeah. Item E, a couple heading off on holiday were stopped. I think this was at the Isle of Wight airport. If I'm not mistaken. Is that right? Isle of Man. Isle of Man. Or, well, yeah, actually, no, no, no. Isle of, I think that's correct stuff. You're right. Not Isle it of It says Boyd. that's where they're from, oh. but I don't know which airport they were Okay, at. well, um, anyway, whichever airport this was, they were heading off for uh, on holiday, and they were stopped at airport security for accidentally packing their pet cat in their hand luggage. Nick and Voire, cool. I'm not sure how you pronounce V-O-I-R-R-E-Y. I've never seen that name before. Uh, we're astonished to find that Candy the cat, had managed to sneak into their suitcase while they were packing for a 40th birthday trip to New York. The pair were ushered into a side room and questioned about the surprising discovery before airport staff organized for the curious cat to be picked up and taken home so the couple could get their flight. Nick from the Isle of Man said that Candy is always looking for bags, boxes, and tight spaces to hide in. Quote from Nick, our hand luggage didn't have much in it so we could bring shopping home. But Candy, our cat, found a way in, and off to the airport we all went. Airport security were all very puzzled, and repeatedly asked if the bag was ours after it had been it had been through the scanner. After being taken into a side room, Nick says his wife guessed it could have been one of their three cats that had secretly decided to join them, and she was right. The couple said staff at the Isle of Man airport were awesome and laughed with them once they realized it was an honest mistake. Then they were handcuffed and taken off to jail for 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Um, well, they, they whip people uh, on the island. But I think it was the last country, uh, I might be wrong, where they uh, still had birching. You know, you could birch someone as a punishment on the Isle of Man. Ooh, like a birch um, branches? Uh, a, a birch is a uh, is a, a pretty long uh, stick you would have seen in old oh. schools for whacking students. Yikes. Mm. Namely, carried by nuns in the Catholic schools. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say it's a cat, so it's no big deal. Yeah, at least a dog, dog might be up in arms over. Yeah, well, actually, I thought Manx cats didn't have tails. I thought they were tailless. Uh, I don't think this one was one of those models, according oh, to the uh, the picture. Mm-hmm. It was not a Manx uh, foreigner, foreign yeah, cat, foreign, a foreign, foreign cat. Yeah, okay. uh, has a couple of cute little pictures there. We'll put the link in the show notes so you can see candy. And we better go to a new story before our audience gets catatonic. Uh, <laughs> okay, where is my rim shot? Here. Um, yeah, well, I guess it doesn't deserve one. Oh, it does. Wow. Okay, uh, this one uh, is an interesting article. Um, I think that, uh, mm, was it I Liz? I take exception to this one. Yeah, Liz found, found this. this. Um, it's a graphic on life satisfaction. And she says, note the location of pilots on this graph. And uh, the, uh, so it's like an XY kind of a two-dimensional graph with a red line in it. And so I'm assuming the red line is like, if you're above the red line, it's good. And below it, it's bad. Is that what you 
kind of well, that's just I where mean, the that's where the average is. So that's the main yeah. main line. It's more about you want to be high on the mm, whichever one's X Y. Sorry, you want to be in the top right math. corner. You want to be in the top right, right corner because then you're high life satisfaction and high gross hourly pay. Are you being paid to enjoy yourself? Exactly. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> hey, I'll sign up for that gig. On this. <laughs> um, so, oddly, life satisfaction goes from seven point zero to eight point three. It's a strange scale, but there you go. So, uh, I'm sure there are some people above and below that, but this is, sure, I guess, yes. the majority. <laughs> oh, um, Liz says it's, this came from Nick, not not Liz. Oh, I was hoping we were going to be able to blame Liz. Yeah. No, <laughs> it's your fault that we're looking at this. So, uh, so as you gathered, of course, you'll have to look at this uh, graphic yeah, in our show. It came notes. from the Times newspaper, is where it came from. Okay. I don't see doctors on here. I'm looking for doctors. That's why I take exception with this. Well, there's some midwives on there. There's a physiotherapist. A physiotherapist. I am none of those things. That's where the farm workers. Where the positions of some of these jobs are. So, bottom left hand corner, which is the worst, are elementary security operations. So I don't know if that means we have schools called elementary schools. I don't know whether it means you're a very basic security operative or you're working in an elementary school. Security at an elementary school, yeah. So unclear, unclear. Sales occupations. I think they mean based person. on based on other things. I think they mean entry level. Yeah. I think yeah, we're talking about right. mall mall cops. Mm. You're probably right. Rounds persons and van salespersons. So basically, white van man. He's pretty much down the bottom left corner. Oh. Uh, and now in the top right corner are aircraft pilots and flight engineers. Now, I wonder if the hourly rates that they are citing for, on this graph at least, for aircraft pilots and flight engineers, I wonder if they made any kind of an adjustment because our hourly rates, if you look at them, if, if you're working for a company that pays in hour, hourly rates, such as Acme Airlines, we, uh, you know, only work uh, 20 I mean, actually get paid, I shouldn't say work, get paid for, let's say, half of a 40-hour work week. So, you know, if you take our hourly rate and divide it by two, that's probably more accurate or more accurately reflects what it would be for um, a regular kind of job. You get paid, you know, for actual time at your job, but I don't know. You would have to ask McKinsey, who's, or McKinsey, whose analysis this is. I don't know. And what about the other person there, the W person? Well, well-being. Oh, never mind. Well, That's not name. For well-being. That's the person that, uh, <laughs> Okay. Well-being. Well, that's the, uh, the, the yeah, that's, article that it that's came Dr. out That's Dr. Well-being, I think. Dr. Well-being. You, you guys are reading that wrong. <laughs> I, I don't think it matters so much what the numbers are. It's the comparison between jobs is the sure. important thing. So yeah. a, uh, uh, the clergy come very high in satisfaction, but they're paid rubbish. Um, legal professionals uh, come quite low in comparison with us, mm -hmm. uh, but they're paid extremely well. Yes. A train and tram driver isn't much higher than a legal professional. Uh, so they obviously get paid reasonably well, but perhaps just driving a tram isn't isn't really doing it for them. Oh, tram. I've, I, and I I've also, figured out, okay, I've also figured out why doctors are not on here. Well, they're, they're off the off charts. The because they're off the chart, exactly. Yeah. Just, I mean, they're exactly. like an 8.3 with well above 40. And they and haven't got sewage engineers well, on either because they're off the bottom. Well, we're off the chart one way or the other. Probably yeah. off our right hand, but then yes. your guess whether it's top or bottom of those uh, life satisfaction hey, Steph, numbers. Yeah. You yeah. are off the charts to us. Oh, 
You guys are too kind. But it looks like the happiest people are florists, farmers, rail transport operatives, farm workers, company secretaries, elected officers and representatives. What are they mean? Politicians. They can't be happy, surely. They don't seem to be very happy. But (laughs) they're supposed to be happy, yeah. Yeah. And and certainly I know I know you don't follow it over there in uh, in uh, England, Nick. But uh, job satisfaction and how much they get paid, I would have to say, soccer players or football players over in England would be way off this chart as well. Yeah, I think they would disappear off the right hand side. Yeah, they earn more in a week than the average bloke earns in a year or more. I want to get back to something that Jeff said that many new listeners or people not particularly familiar with uh, uh, pilots, at least in the USA, pilots and flight attendants and how they get paid. But I think it's important for people to know that may not be familiar is that you guys don't get paid until the door is closed. So for all the time you're sitting on the ground or in holds or whatever with the door open at the gate, flight attendants, nor do pilots get paid. It's only when the door is closed. And I think uh, many people who may be new listeners may not be aware of that. And it's important to know. Yeah, but we 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 didn't. We got paid a salary. And I think it yeah, depends right. on that's why I said in the U.S. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and there are some. I think there are a handful of um, air carriers in the U.S. that are also paid you know, on a salary basis as well. Um, and then a, a lot. I think corporate flying is that way. So um, and now I should add that uh, I think that there are certain exceptions to that, Micah, as far as sitting on the ground with the door closed and or maybe even open where the no, I take that back. The, the door has to be closed. So if you're sitting yeah. at a gate with passengers on, they're still working, obviously, but because the door is open, they're not getting paid. But we do right. have certain protections um, in uh, like a minimum amount of pay per day. At Acme, for pilots, it's a minimum of five hours and 15 minutes, whether we fly that much or not. And for the flight attendants, I think it's like 4.45. That's actually not true, Jeff. It's not. Because no. it's an average. Okay. Well, so over over the trip, yeah. it has to average. Well, effectively people. speaking, effectively. I mean, yeah. if we want to get so, into the you know the minute details, then perhaps oh, trying to bring us up to fifty percent. Uh, yeah. Well, hang on. Um. <laughs> okay. Uh, item G: One of Delta's first flight attendants dies at Delta is a very similar company to Acme. Uh, our, what we call it, our sister airline. Um, one of Delta's first flight attendants dies at age 103 while working the Atlanta to Heathrow. I was going to say, which <laughs> flight was she on? She may have been actually <laughs> on flight 103. <laughs> we do I have a like lot working. of them that are working uh, very well. Uh, I'm not going to even go. They just love their job so much. They yes. can't give it up. Into, and they have well, nothing else in their life. Sybil <laughs> mm-hmm. Peacock Harmon, a part of Delta Airlines' name, first class of flight attendants, has died at the age of 103. Uh, she was 24 years old when she was, uh, she was a nursing home, uh, school, nursing home, <laughs> a nurse. <laughs> well, later in her life, maybe. Um, let me start reading that paragraph again. No, Harman, I like it the way. No, I like it. It's just yeah, the way it is. Just keep going. Leave it right there. Just keep don't on going. Don't fix that in post. Yeah, you just don't need to fix it. I'm going to fix it. No. <laughs> Harmon was a 24-year-old nursing school graduate when she was hired in 1940 as a Delta stewardess. Back then, stewardesses were required to be registered nurses. Since, what? Yeah. Since yeah, then, yeah. Uh, yes. stewardesses has, have become known as flight attendants. Delta has grown into one of the largest airlines in, in the world, and Harman's flight logbooks have been preserved by the Delta Flight Museum. 
She worked for Delta from 1940 to 1943, and that's pretty common as well, only working a short period mm -hmm. of time, because once you were married, you were no longer allowed to work as a flight attendant or a, a stewardess back then, uh, flying mainly on the 21-seat DC-3 before leaving the airline to join the war effort. Oh, she left because she was joining the war effort. Mm -hmm. uh, she that skeptic skepticism from uh, Steph, I hear. No, no, I was just... Um... Oh, you were agreeing. Agreeing. Yeah. Okay. She then married U.S. Army Captain Wallace Harmon, a former Delta Reservations agent who eventually became a, a district director of traffic and sales in Dallas. Their daughter, Peggy, worked as a Delta flight attendant from 1973 until 2008. I got my calculator out and figured that that was uh, 35 years. So that was a, a nice, again, the contrast with her mother working three years. And she basically, back then it was not a career for, for stewardesses. And now a flight attendant is a career, as you can see from her daughter, Peggy, working 35 years. Uh, Delta threw a 102nd birthday party for Harmon last year at her retirement home in Ackworth. The chief executive officer, Ed Bastian, recorded a birthday message thanking her for all you did to put Delta on the map. On oh, I wish they'd recorded a special message for me after three years of work. Yeah, well... We have, we're going to record a special message for yeah. you, Nick. <laughs> as a pioneer of the airline. Yeah, I can just imagine what that's going to say. As one of the pioneer pilots, pioneering pilots of Acme Airlines, we award you our thanks for your... Wooden clock. <laughs> All right. And then uh, to stay with the flight attendant theme... Uh, the last item in our news folder is this from CNN. An all-female Delta team flew 120 girls to NASA to get them excited about aviation careers. Delta flies from Salt Lake City to Houston every day, but one recent trip was a little different, packed with girls getting a behind-the-scenes lesson about aviation. The airline took 120 girls between 12 and 18 to NASA's Johnson Space Center last week for International Girls in Aviation Day. The event was designed to encourage more women to enter the male-dominated field. The girls, who came from area STEM schools, which is, means science, technology, engineering, math, got to see women run all aspects of their flight, Delta said. The plane had an all-female pilot and flight crew, ramp agents and gate agents on the ground, and women in the control tower giving pilots instructions, telling us what to do, telling them what to do. The students toured NASA's mission control and ate lunch with astronaut and aerospace engineer Jeanette Epps. Or Jeanette Epps. Uh, we know representation matters. At Delta, we believe you have to see it to be it, said Beth Poole, general manager of pilot development, who started the program in 2015. We're taking ownership to improve gender diversity by exposing girls at a young age and providing a pipeline so that 10 years from now, they will be the pilots in the Delta cockpit, inspiring generations of women to follow. <laughs> Nick, oh. I hate you right now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Why? What there I was do? nothing funny in that. Hey. I didn't do a thing. I'm the one that highlighted it, actually. You it, did? I it, hate you, it, Jeff. It caught my eye, and I'm thinking, I think that she left it was out. poor semantics. She left uh, out a yeah. word or two there yeah. to kind of really express what she yeah. means there. But anyway. Also, we're yeah. childish. Sorry. Yeah, well, that's... Well, that's part of what we do here. <laughs> to borrow from uh, Airplane Geeks historian David Vanderhoof, I'm really thrilled that they sent an unmanned aircraft to this event. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Delta says that 5% of its pilots are women and that 7.4% hired over the last four years are women. So they are, they're upping their standards up yours. 
Um, and uh, <laughs> Girls in Aviation Day was a worldwide effort, and organizers say that more than 20,000 people participated in the United States, Canada, and Australia, as well as, as in countries in Africa, Asia, and Europe. What if I had bid to fly that? Well, you would have been given a different schedule, I think. I don't think that it was probably up for bid, Dana. Well, but see, here's here's the whole deal. I do have a female's first name, so I may have passed. Oh, yeah, you Mm -hmm. might. Wouldn't that have been funny? You'd have had to wear a skirt. (laughs) Dana shows up. Okay, let's go. Where are we going? Let's go. Uh, What are you doing here? (laughs) What are you doing here? You're not. uh, Okay. You have the wrong equipment, sir. Yeah. Equipment check. I, right. I'm still no, waiting for my no. apology from HR. It hasn't come through yet. I'm sorry, Nick. I I falsely blamed you for shenanigans <laughs> that Jeff got up to. But we correctly uh, yeah. uh, blame you for that graphic that we had in the previous uh, couple of items there. Yeah, I don't think any blame was required. Well, Thank that's true. Much. It was a nice graph. Never mind. Good work, Nick. Sorry. Nice giraffe. All, all I can say is these ladies make the piloting profession look good. Yes, they do. Yeah, definitely. And um, this is for you, Captain Nick. Good work. Nick. (laughs) (laughs) Good work, Virgin. All right. Um, Let's see here. I think it might be time for us to kind of get to know each other. What do you think? Getting to know you. Getting to know all about you. Get it to like you, get it to hope you like. It's too low for me to sing that note. Anyway, it's our segment where we kind of get caught up. Oh, look, you know, I wish you could see the video. You're so cute. Main man Micah and Dana just <laughs> dancing along with the music in the background. Wow. That's very special. Anyway, um, so uh, let's see. Who wants to go first? Uh, what have you been up to since our last episode, which was last Thursday? Hmm. Okay. Mm. No volunteers. Jeff goes first today. Okay. Let, let's skip this yeah. bit. That's okay. Nominate let's Jeff for change. All right. Oh, let's okay. uh, talk about. Let me get my notes. Uh, really, haven't done a lot to be honest right. with you. So that was good, Jeff. Wait, uh, I'm not finished though. <laughs> hang on. Hang on. Um, so. Uh, I was on a three day trip and uh, so I had the whole weekend off. It was nice, a wonderful, relaxing weekend and, uh, went out Monday through Wednesday. I was in, um, uh, the empire state capital the first night, Albany, New York, and then, uh, the second night in Providence, Rhode Island, and then back yesterday afternoon. And here I am, and I'm not scheduled to go out again until Monday on a four day trip. Um, also, you can uh, look into our APG community calendar where you can see where the crew is and any scheduled meetups in the future. Again, that's airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar. Um, oh, I have a note here. Oh, wait, before I talk about that, um, there have been some folks asking about or inquiring about uh, any kind of a big event because we're on episode 397 right now and we're coming uh, getting very close to episode 400 and they were wondering if we were going to do anything special for that and i think we decided that uh, especially after that really big blowout osh blast 2019 that uh, we'll just kind of keep it on the on the down low for a while and then maybe do something extra special for our 500th episode which will be i guess in a couple of years right if i two years yeah two just years under just under two years so uh, so we didn't actually have any formal discussion about that, but I think that has been generally our feeling on the crew, right? 
We've discussed nothing and gotten a lot of inquiry about it. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. As is normal with our with our group. <laughs> but anywho, so for those of you wondering, no. It's a formalized discussion. We're now doing a formalized discussion mm-hmm. on this, and we have ruled that we are not going to do a special 400 show. So it'll be just like every other one, basically. Oh, by the way, personally speaking, I started the Catholic Pilot podcast back in, I don't remember the exact na- date, but I think it was like September 9th of twenty or 2009. And so we just went over the the 10 year podcasting point. So, woohoo. Yeah. Yay. So, and still doing it. So, yay. With all the help of my great co hosts, of course. I couldn't have done it without you guys. And, um, oh, I just noticed something. We have some, um, some audio feedback from someone that we haven't heard from in a while. So, let me uh, hit the play button. You guys ready for this? Yes. Yep. Of course. He turns around and says, if I could fly like that old chap, I wouldn't need the ointment. <laughs> well, that's great, Vic. Uh, station check. This is the Airline of Flying Guy show. I am Captain Jerry Nelson, and this is not Kamikaze Whiskey. No, my friends, this is Johnny Walker, uh, Double Black Label, and I'd just like to take this time to thank you once again for uh, contributing via patronizeme.com and uh, making this podcast <laughs> possible <laughs> oh i almost forgot uh captain elf has written a new book it's entitled i have it here uh why you probably won't die horribly in an air crash <laughs> captain elf he's uh he's done a lot of good work for those who have a fear of flying well he's done a lot of work anyway and i'd uh, just like to say one thing before we uh, move on to the feedback if you're sending in audio feedback about the short pilot's tale. Remember, it's a short pilot's tale, not a short pilot's tale. (laughs) And if you're writing in, it's T-A-L-E, okay? Okay. So, Doc, uh, what's the first item in the feedback? Well, Jerry, it's about holding patterns. Uh, wait a minute. Oh, behave. I'm sorry. Was there some sort of innuendo involved in that? Uh, maybe not. Anyway, John wants to know our views on holding patterns. Well, uh, John, I, uh, I think holding patterns are pretty boring, you know, uh, just elongated ellipses. Well, that's hardly the point. Now with uh, Flight Radar 24 <laughs> and such, you can leave your mark in the sky. I like to at least... Uh, you know, draw a banana if I can. Uh, what was that, Jerry? A banana? Yeah, a banana. So, how do you fly the uh, ends of the banana? Uh, you mean the uh, pointy parts? Uh, yes, the uh, pointy parts. I mean, what sort of bank angle are we looking at here? Uh, I don't know. Uh, seventy-five, eighty degrees. <laughs> And the uh, passengers are okay with that, then? Well, it's a coordinated turn. I'm on the pedals. You know me. I like to keep it smooth, real smooth. Right. In fact, I'm trying to find someone who can help me program my profile into the FMC. Hey, I think we got the title for the show, Holding Patterns. Well, I wouldn't advertise it if I were you, Jerry. What do you mean? Uh, Nothing. You go ahead. Well, I uh, guess you're wondering why 
Captain Danny isn't here today. He's uh, <laughs> recuperating from an incident after one of his trips at the Atlanta airport. He had a run-in with a, an FAA inspector that he's had problems with in the past. Anyway, an argument uh, with him and the inspector escalated, and at the behest of the uh, inspector, two TSA agents uh, had to... Uh, Taze, Danny. <laughs> and we have a video of that incident that we're going to play now. Uh, is that enough, sir? Uh, one more. Yow! <laughs> and I'm sure we'd uh, all agree that those were upsetting scenes involving our fellow captain and co-host, Captain Danny. Oh, absolutely. Yep. <laughs> Yet, strangely entertaining. So we'll have that video available for you in the show notes. So what is our next item of feedback, Vic? Well, Jerry, uh, Gene writes in and asks if being an airline pilot is still a glamorous occupation. <laughs> uh, well, Gene, um... A lot of pilots say that uh, being a, an airline pilot, you know, it's uh, one and a half, two hours of uh, boredom sprinkled with uh, 15 minutes of sheer terror. <laughs> That's what a lot of the FOs that fly with me say. But, you know, I think there is uh, still quite a bit of glamour involved in my occupation. Jerry, are you still playing with your friends on the computer? Uh, yeah. Well, do you think you could unclog the downstairs, John, like you said you would? The plunger is under the basin. Right. Well, I guess we're uh, hitting that seven-hour mark uh, anyway, so I'll just hand the details of uh, how to contact us over to Hal. All right. Thank you. Uh, Brilliant. Captain Jerry. Brilliant. That was awesome. I'm crying. Like, literally crying. <laughs> so funny. So those were the uh, wonderful voice acting skills of Bruce Bowden. And he asked me to uh, give everybody his URL. It's uh, voices.com slash, slash actors slash Bruce underscore Bowden um, hashtag bio. Well, we'll just put that in the show notes for you. If you ha want somebody to do some voiceover work for you, obviously he has a great uh, repertoire of um, of character voices, including Captain Jerry and Captain Danny and uh, Captain Vic, Doc, and Captain Vic. <laughs> Good stuff. Gets up your nose, obviously. <laughs> That was funny. Oh, absolutely hysterical. Yeah. I meant to play that on the last episode and completely forgot because I had it off to the side in one of the columns in the intro notebook. And uh, I was so upset with myself after we ended the last show and I went, oh, darn it. Well, I'm glad you played it today because I think I probably would have missed it if you played it in the last show. That's true. Yeah. So, yeah. Or at least <sighs> the live version. That made that my sides epic, hurt. Though. Absolutely epic. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's, he's uh, captured the... The character of uh, each of us very well. He's been he's been taking notes. I yes, think. he's yeah. been studying. And us. He, he made it sound like it was three hours long as well. That's very good. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, as, we're, we're, I was about to say that the show's over now, guys. Yeah, we're approaching <laughs> the seven hour show. point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, very, very, oh, very clever. So thank you, Bruce, uh, for that. And uh, let's see. That is all for me. And uh, so who wants to go next? How about Okay, Dr. I'll go. Okay, Dana. Oh, Dr. You about to say Dr. Steph. Like I was Dana. about to say that, but uh, let's go with you. And nothing interesting. Very, uh, very easy uh, four day that I'm on. Uh, yesterday was not so easy, but it was uh, challenging in, the, in a very positive way. Um, came and flew, uh, let's see, up to Greenville, Spartanburg, and back. Uh, took an hour and 35 minutes to fly from Greenville back to Atlanta on a 29-minute flight. Uh, air traffic control delays into Atlanta due to all of the construction that's going on. Yeah, we were about ready to uh, start our engines to go ahead and meet our control takeoff time for air traffic control, and nothing. We couldn't get the engine started, so that was the, that was that was fun. Um, the APU had decided to quit right then and there, hmm. uh, so we only had about 500 psi, so it, it wouldn't spool the engines past about uh, uh, eight or nine percent and two. So that would result in a very hot start, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. So I uh, called operations real quick, and they were very responsive. Got the huffer carts out there uh, to start the engines uh, remotely. With the, and if you don't know what a huffer cart is, is basically it's an external uh, jet engine that blows high-speed air that we would normally get out of, uh, out of the APU to allow the uh, engines to spool up and, and, and create ignition once we put the fuel to it. So in sparks of course so we didn't have the ability to do so so they got it started but we missed our uh, control time by about uh, two minutes despite their best effort so that was the end of that we and it was interesting because i had to make some pretty quick decisions including uh, calling maintenance and getting our uh, our uh, approved uh, uh, procedure on that uh, for our mel which needed dispatch approval required so that we still met our time to get airborne for our next release which was uh, much sooner than the last one. And then uh, coming here to Portland, uh, I don't know why I decided to do it, but right at departure time, we decided to check our tire pressure on our, on our, all of our, our tires. So uh, it delayed us a little bit. But other than that, uh, beautiful flying weather in the Atlanta and actually the entire east coast of the U.S. As I mentioned earlier in the show, the weather here in, in Portland's absolutely fantastic, fantastic fall day and uh, been a nice, easy trip. Nothing else really to report pretty pretty basic very good thanks dana uh, micah what have you been doing since uh, the last episode let me see the last time i was on was like sometime in september so let me see that's like five no um things been going okay been having a good time uh knew, knowing that dana was coming in last night i was able to drop off a little surprise for him at the hotel um, yes you did so I had to, you know, take care of him because you know what that midnight flight from George is like, Jeff, you've done it yourself. Everything's closed. There's mm -hmm. no bar. There's no food. So somebody's got to take I care of you. I actually wrote a song about that, Micah. Midnight Did you really? train to George. No, wait a minute. No, I didn't. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, we chatted a little bit last night, picked Dana up uh, this morning, went to a uh, lunch at Becky's Diner, which is just a great place in Portland. It's like gourmet food in a diner. And uh, then we set up here and Dana brought me this great present. Look at that. Isn't that a wonderful aircraft? Look at that thing. That's going to go in a place of honor in my home. Very nice. And, uh, and here we are. For the benefit of those who aren't watching the video, what is it that you held up? It's a beautiful model of an Acme MD-90. Cool. Very good. 
and very and I didn't want to talk about it a whole lot because I figured Mike would talk about it. But let me tell you what the food was uh, fantastic. The hospitality is always fantastic. My entire crew, uh, when I showed up at the hotel last night, looked at looked at me when I had this cooler. I mean, a Coleman personal cooler that showed up with my name plastered all over it. And I uh, started opening it up as they were signing in for the hotel rooms. And I pulled out these two wonderful sandwiches that uh, actually more like uh, uh, subs, uh, torpedoes or, or whatever you want to call them, um, that Micah had handmade with, with, uh, with love and care. And then five, uh, five of the uh, Smirnoff Ice or uh, Mike's Hard Lemonade. My, Mike's hard, hard Lemonade, which then you know, I aptly you know, had to taste to make sure that they were. They were perfect. So uh, today, Becky's, I had a lobster roll and some clam chowder. Oh, fantastic, fantastic. Enjoyable time being here with Micah, as always. And Dana wanted uh, matzo brai for uh, an evening dinner, which, for those of you who don't know, it's like French, a savory French toast made with matzo. So we've got that all set up, and I figured if we're doing that, that's kind of a dairy dinner when it comes down to a traditional Jewish dinner. So in going in that aspect of it, we're having – uh, cream pickled herring with onion and white fish salad and uh, smoked salmon. And I made some homemade tuna salad to go along with that. And uh, we'll start that sometime when the show's over. And Ooh. Dr. DeMarco, don't worry about it. my blood works on for another two months. Okay. <laughs> don't worry about it. Awesome. I think I'll, I don't know. I do not know if I'll fit in my uniform by the time I leave here tomorrow morning. You're making my stomach just uh, growl. Strangely, strangely hungry over yeah. here. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dana and Micah and Steph. Now it's your turn. All right. Waiting patiently for that. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> so last show was Thursday. Today is Thursday again. I um, feel like I've been very busy in the past week, but none of it has been flying related per se, unless you count some body flight time. I uh, booked some time in the wind tunnel again with a coach and uh, been been doing some interesting indoor skydiving related activities recently so working on getting better at that um, i do need to do some actual flying in an airplane here soon um but kind of been getting caught up on life after a little bit of travel and being away in a marathon and um honestly i had some work to catch up on last saturday over the weekend and then i had all kinds of plans to catch up everything else in the rest of my life including cleaning this messy office here and um you can see how far I got on that. So it's been looks another good. busy. Yeah, it looks great, right? Actually, I think there's more stuff here now than there was last week. Well, Steph, the, there's a reason why I have a very a large screen TV I, I, behind me. I need to do that, I think. Yeah, so you can't see any <laughs> of the mess in this place. The, hide <laughs> this stuff. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been just busy work, um, getting into our busy time of year again, October, November, December, always busy after people have met their deductibles um but that's a completely different podcast so anyway, do you do another podcast um, maybe oh no okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> moon, no definitely not moonlighting <laughs> on me huh uh -huh. Uh -huh. okay excellent well you yeah never mind um anything else I don't think so. I was looking back through my calendar trying to see if I'd done anything interesting of note. Um, it's mostly been work-related stuff and um, honestly not that interesting. All right. Well, that this sounds like the, my life. This has been the best part of my week so yeah. far. Excellent. Oh, you're sweet. Okay. Uh, excellent. So, Captain Nick, last but not least, how have you been, sir? 
Uh, keeping well, thanks very much indeed. Uh, I got a lovely surprise today. Uh, lovely big package pitched up, and uh, uh, for once I didn't have to pay duty and VAT on it because I often get lovely packages pitch up, and then I suddenly realise that the um, whoever sent them <laughs> has left an outstanding bill. <laughs> but there you go, that's life. Um, so <laughs> this one uh, was from uh, a Stefan uh, from Hamburg. Uh, he and his lovely wife, Kirsten. Uh, we met at the Frankfurt meetup, uh, which was absolutely brilliant. And he did say that he would have loved to have bought us um, a Stein, one for me and one for you, which I could have eventually got to, I guess. Um, but he said, actually, uh, Hamburg isn't famous for its beer, uh, so a Stein might not have been appropriate. Uh, so what he's done is sent me a bottle of what Hamburg is famous for, and apparently uh, it's famous for its gin. Oh, uh, It's called uh, Gin Soul. Uh, it's a Hamburg gin distilled with much love and selected botanicals at the uh, Alternaire Spirits Manufactory. Uh, the beauty of the simple juniper berries, coriander, fresh lemons from uh, Portugal, uh, rosemary, allspice, lavender, cinnamon, and uh, custos are just a few of the botanicals uh, that conserve the saudade uh, of the gin. I look at what saudade is, and it's apparently a feeling of longing, melancholy, and nostalgia. That is supposedly characteristic of the Portuguese. That's assuming oh. I've pronounced it correctly. Otherwise, it might be a swear word for all I know. <laughs> uh, apparently, the water for this gin is pumped up from 33 fountains, which are up to 1,000 feet below the Earth's surface, deep in the sands and gravels of the Sol Ice Age, uh, which occurred around 250,000 years ago, which probably means it's only polluted by the odd little bit of woolly mammoth pee. Um, it's bottled in a lovely a stoneware clay bottle, which is uh, reminiscent of the gin's predecessor, a drink called uh, Geneva, which was exclusively poured from clay jugs. Um, and there's a ship on the front, which is apparently the uh, Hadag Ferry, which used to ply the waters of Hamburg across the Elbe, but now are found in Portugal only. So that's a lovely gift, and thank you very much indeed. If we get a quiet moment, probably when there's a plain tale, I'm going to pour myself a glass of this and see what it tastes like. Um, Sadly, Jeff isn't with me to try it out as well. Well, he'll, he'll reflect upon his thoughts and uh, opinions when he actually uh, takes a sip of that wonderful gin. So are you, are you, you know, I don't think you have um, a super palate for gin, right? You kind of are easing into uh, drinking I'm, gin. I'm learning. I'm learning to mm -hmm. consume gin, and I'm be doing a bit more this weekend because uh, uh, I'm off on an Air Force to get together with my uh, some of the members of the original uh, flying training course uh, I was on when we started flying training back in 1975, which is absolutely brilliant. So uh, we're meeting up at uh, Captain Nige's uh, house, which you went uh -oh. to when you came across. Exactly right. Oh, and there's gin be, involved. That's going to be there trouble. Will be gin involved. Oh, I'm pretty sure. I might have to head uh, over we, to there for that. <laughs> <laughs> we have a knight I'm of the realm. <laughs> we have a knight of the realm and his lovely lady uh, coming. We've got a bloke with the funniest name in the world, Dick Bendy. He'll be there. Um, uh, it's going to be a party. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
absolutely. And uh, Daka Daka and his lovely wife, Lizzie. Uh, Daka Daka, because his initials are D-A-K, and uh, because he was going to be a fighter pilot, we all called him Daka Daka. Uh, a few, sadly, unable to make it, but uh, commiserations to those who are going to miss out on a fine weekend of uh, eating and drinking. So that's going to be me. I might even uh, try and get everyone to help me out with a patreon recording while we're mm-hmm. there and in our cups so we'll have to see how that turns out excellent um so did you say something about patronize me um, <laughs> yeah I, I always try and do that anyway <laughs> jeff you should know that i do <laughs> all right very good um i want to remind everybody because i forgot to mention it in uh, my little segment that uh we are planning on having a meetup or Myself and Liz and whoever else can make it in, uh, how, how do I say it? Toronto? Toronto. Um, Toronto. Toronto. Okay. Or Toronto for everybody else in the world. Uh, on the 5th of November, I'm laying over there. And uh, so we're going to, Liz is trying to coordinate some kind of a, a gathering. So please stay tuned to um, the details that will be available on Slack. And as we get closer to the event, we have something uh, nailed down. We'll go ahead and probably tweet it and put it, uh, put it in Facebook as well. So, uh, thanks to Liz for, uh, kind of coordinating all that. And, um, I may, uh, have some kind of a little mini meetup. I'm not sure yet in, um, uh, Sarasota on the fourth, the day before that'll be a, definitely a meetup trip. Um, Kyle from, I'm not sure where he's from. I think he's from somewhere in Canada because his email address ends with a dot CA. And, uh, so, uh, he is there with his organization, um, raising money for charity and, uh, he's in the Bradenton area actually. And, uh, so not sure if that's going to be a public meetup or not, but, uh, I'll let you know if that, uh, develops into one. So, uh, yeah, that's only in what, a couple of weeks, I guess, less than a and couple Jeff, of weeks. Yeah. While you're up there in Toronto, please say hello to the Lone Ranger. Okay. Oh, I get Lone- it. Oh, okay. Okay. Wow. Hang on. Wow. <laughs> Here <you> wow. Go. <laughs> I'll do that. Thank you. All right. That is all. Okay, we can have. I just tell you one other thing that yes. I should have mentioned before, but it's actually very important to me. And I just sure. want to thank you for having me on the show. And I'm so glad that Dana's here today because today is the uh, 89th. My mother would have been 89 years old had she been around. And it's kind of would have been a sad day for me to just kind of hang out on my own. But uh, it's not a sad day. It's a great day because I've got friends with me all over the world. And you guys and Dana's right here. So thank you so much. You are right, welcome. I'm, I'm coming over and I'm giving Mike a hug. <laughs> Aww. Yay, hug from, hug hey, from all of us. Good job. Good job. There seem to be a lot of hugs passed along through other people in the history of the show. Isn't yes. that true? We're very huggy Involving people. Micah. Yeah. So. We're very touchy-feely people. Come on. We are. We are. <laughs> Okay. Um, speaking of uh, huggy people, these are especially huggy people with their contributions to the coffee fund. Yeah, that didn't work very well, did it? Johnny, how much more coffee? Sure thing. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Oh, yeah. So, the coffee fund. We're singing the Java. Actually, Jeff Smith is singing the Java Jive. I'm trying to sing with him. Not doing a very good job of it. Sorry. 
Uh, we sing the Java Jive, or he does, because we are talking about the Coffee Fund, which is your way, dear listener, to become uh, take more ownership in the show by contributing to it financially. Only if you have the resources to do so, of course. It's a free show. We enjoy doing it. It's a labor of love. But we do have expenses. And we do these great meetups, too. And uh, all of our Coffee Fund money goes toward all that. And if you want to take part in this great group of folks, uh, such as Carl Lake, Ryan Austin, David Lieb, and Chris Randall, they uh, use the Coffee Fund Classic method of contributing, please do. And we also have a different way to do it. You can become a patron of the show via patreon.com. Not patronize me. Patreon.com and uh, details about how you can join the Coffee Fund Condre or the Coffee Bar Club or whatever you want to call this great group of folks. You can head over to airlinepilotguy.com, our great website, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. You'll be glad you did. We will too. Thank you, everybody. All right, it's now time for our feedback segment. And we'll start with uh, item one in the feedback folder. And this is from Brad. In episode 394, you read feedback from Radio Roger about a passenger who was removed from an airplane after showing some confusion. Your discussion focused on a possible mental health emergency, but never touched on the possibility that the patient was having an honest medical emergency. Dr. Steph can back me up. That acute altered mental status with symptoms like were described could be the result of anything from a diabetic emergency to a stroke in progress. A person who isn't acting right isn't always mentally ill. As an EMT with over 20 years in the field, we've seen many patients written off as drunk or crazy who were neither. As a longtime airplane geek and low-time private pilot, I very much enjoy the content of your podcasts. I'm about 40 episodes deep so far, mostly on the on my drive to work or while mowing my lawn. I heard this episode and thought it might be about time for me to help keep you guys above 50%. And we do appreciate it, Brad. I'll be watching the calendar to see if Captain Jeff or Captain Dana are ever back to uh, Kilo Mike Sierra November, which is Madison, Wisconsin. I'm an assistant fire chief of the fire department, which provides uh, aircraft rescue firefighting, or ARF as we like to say, for the field. I'd be happy to give you a tour of the fighter wing, which we're based. Um, Unfortunately, it doesn't seem as though we get as many Acme MD-80s anymore, as they seem to have switched many of those flights to the 717 or the A321s. Also, if he's ever back in Wisconsin, you guys can bring Captain Nick down to Madison, and I can arrange that proper retirement water cannon salute that he never got. Stay safe out there. Hopefully any future possible visits won't be a business call for me. Brad uh, Ingersoll, the Assistant Fire Chief, uh, Truax Fire and Emergency Services in Madison, Wisconsin. Thanks, Brad. And you know what? Brad and I did uh, kind of discuss, discuss, not discuss, I'm, I'm thinking of Oshkosh, apparently, uh, discuss the possibility of us uh, detouring the uh, RV on the way up from Chicago to Oshkosh to Madison to see if we could arrange for some sort of a cannon fire cannon salute, <laughs> but that never uh, materialized. Uh, but I do appreciate it, Brad, for offering. And I guess the offer still stands, Nick. So uh, if you want to come on over here, we'll run yeah, another can RV. I wear, can I wear my swimming trunks? I was going to suggest you a birthday suit. 
Uh, no, 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 no. Don't make that. No, 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 no. Mm, the good you, people Dana. of medicine. Uh, yeah. They're, yeah. Not, they're not ready for that quite. yet. Yeah. <laughs> they don't want to be quite that impressed. <laughs> they, they, don't, they don't want to see. Uh, forget it. I'm, I'm just going. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Shut up. Shut up. Yeah, Micah, uh, just start hitting him when he starts to, you know, look like he's going to say something. No, but I did stop myself. Did I not? Thank you. did. Self-control. Excellent. Yes, Thank I you, Dana. So Although gonna... I've noticed you're uh, on uh, either number two or number three on those drinks. So uh, we'll have to keep quick uh, or a close eye on you. Well, I'm keeping a close eye on the squirrel outside that's playing with his. Uh... All right. So uh, let's go <laughs> to the part of the feedback. Uh, How about the, the first part? Yes. Uh, wait, Please. Yeah, right Steph, there. help. Let me, let me help you out here. Thank so, you. Um, you know, I'm trying to remember all the details from episode 394. That was only, what, three episodes ago, and I've already forgotten the details of that particular uh, news oh, item. Uh, Radio Roger was talking about uh, his wife was on a flight out of L.A., and this mm. lady said, you know, when are we going to be in L.A.? And that's where they were at the time when they were taxing out. And they Was taxi- I there for that episode? Uh, you may not have been. Mm. But it was, been the, uh, it was in the feedback uh, stuff. So. Mm. Uh, yeah. Mm, sorry. Yeah prepared as usual. Actually, I probably was there for that discussion. So uh, my apologies for that too. That's even worse. Uh, no, you're absolutely correct, Brad. Um, someone who's got who's acting inappropriately doesn't necessarily just have to be a mental health emergency or they're crazy or they're uh, intoxicated. Certainly you can see people um, exhibiting inappropriate behavior such as that with all kinds of acute medical issues that do need attention and treatment. Um, I can think of even more than what you've just listed there in terms of diabetic emergency, stroke in progress, um, had a uh, recent experience with pseudo seizures, which was interesting. Um, uh, not me personally, but uh, something to deal with at, uh, in the workplace setting. Um, so yeah, there's, there's all kinds of things that can... Um, can present uh, as one thing, um, but actually be something significant in terms of timely and appropriate medical treatment. So that should not ever be written off. And you should always, if you are the uh, professional tasked with caring for that person um, who shows up on scene or in whatever place of work you happen to be, uh, make sure that your examination and evaluation are thorough. Well said, doctor. I suppose from our point of view, if we're going to get a medical uh, specialist involved, uh, then whatever the problem is will be resolved. So uh, knowing exactly what the cause is is not so important for us, so long as we can recognize it as not something that's uh, drunk or someone's drunk or drug uh, affected and we get the, uh, the medics involved. Correct. Yeah. You know, the first thing from your standpoint is obviously if the person's a disruption or a flight safety hazard, um, you have to deal with that from your point of view, from your job angle. Um, but if it is something that seems like it's medical in nature, you need to get that person the the attention that they that they need. And you may be helped uh, by other folks with that, certainly law enforcement or whoever shows up to respond to the situation. So. Uh, Very good. Should we say goodnight briefly to Captain Al? Who yes, is Captain Al is uh, write another book in the series of crashes are bad but not scary. <laughs> yeah. I look forward to that. Excellent books, by the way. Yes. Yes. Uh, yes. Oh, actually, well, I have one more thing. Be uh, touching back on the last before we move on in Brad's feedback. There, um, I was on the social meds today. Mm-hmm. Um, half of my Twitter is kind of devoted to aviation stuff, and the other half is mostly medical stuff, which probably makes some good sense. Um, but a uh, actually, I don't even know that I follow this particular. 
physician, um, but it came up in my feed from others who had liked it. There was a poll and he said, who would you want to help you during an in-flight emergency? And then he's listed four specialties. So assuming you're one doctor, um, you have a choice of a dermatologist, ophthalmologist, radiologist, or pathologist was his poll. And what <laughs> By the way, were the results? None, well, none of these people are involved in or have very limited like direct uh, patient care contact. No. Uh, so far, the radiologist is winning. You know, that, so for some it. reason, that would have been the one that I would have chosen. I have no hmm. idea why. You know, I, 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 I didn't pathologist. know. Hmm? Pathologist? Yes. That's who I chose, too. Um, and for, I, yeah, I, I could have picked any of them, though. But they're all medical professionals. They're all physicians. Um, but certainly, uh, if given the choice, I want the emergency medicine doctor sitting next to me yeah. to help on that flight. Um there were some pretty funny gifts along with it too, and not meant to um, belittle our dermatologist, ophthalmologist, radiologist, pathologist friends. Um, I'm a physical medicine and rehabilitation provider, so I'm right there with you um, in that list, probably. You know, for me, I would have chosen probably a dermatologist because, in my experience, most of the dermatologists that I have dealt with have come from other professions. Many of them pediatricians, which make them mm. general practice people, yep. which they have other expertise within there before they specialize in dermatology. So. Yep, but I've known a couple to be family medicine doctors before they go into dermatology, so exactly exactly the case. Um, I'm reminded of a Seinfeld episode where... <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Remember how Jerry gave that dermatologist so, such a bad time because, you know, she claimed that... She, <laughs> she claimed that she, she saved someone's life. She goes, a dermatologist. And then, of course, it turns out that she diagnosed the person with skin cancer and actually right. did save the person's save life. life. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that was a good one. Everything, anyway, just, everything can relate to Seinfeld or an, a, is, an episode of Seinfeld, I think. This is true. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Excellent. Uh, thank you, uh, Steph, for helping us answer Brad's question regarding that. And thank you for your input, Brad. And uh, if we uh, need some water cannon salutes, we know who to go to. And uh, oh, so I mean, Brad's all is not lost, honestly, because it looks like uh, Acme just announced uh, what, two days ago. No, yesterday uh, that they're coming out with another bid. So we'll see. I might be on that 717 coming back in there to the Madison Airport. You never know. Yeah. And maybe I'll be uh, retiring on the 717. <laughs> so who knows? Oh, I thought you were just saying you're just retiring. Like, no, I'm just retiring. Anymore. I'm I'm yeah, who knows? Um. And by the way, uh, in our chat room, Brad, we have um, a, a proud resident of Madison, Uber Frank. Uh, so I don't know if you guys know each other, but uh, if, if not, you should get to get to know each other. So have an APG meetup. <laughs> not to, not in a funny, intimate way that Dane is thinking about, apparently. No, no, I'm not. I'm just reading what Uber Frank just wrote. Oh, what did he say? He said, I thought Dana said proctologist. Oh. <laughs> 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 That'd probably also be a good one to include in the, uh, you know, survey. Yeah. Okay. Moving on. Uh, item two class Bravo. Chris writes, APG crew loving the new format news first, then the rest as a former TV news producer. I'm always thinking about how I might stack your show. Happy. I've never heard of that term. Um, happy to add thoughts as needed offline, especially since you're so quick to be critical of the media. <laughs> Sorry. Stack it in the bin. I would. <laughs> Yeah, well, hopefully you're not taking that personally. Class Please problem, don't. Chris. Please yeah. don't. <laughs> okay. Uh, the reason for my feedback, I was recently a passenger on a United Regional flight operated by SkyWest into Denver International 
when I saw something out my window I've never seen. And he says, I fly 120,000 miles per year, always with my window shade open. Yay. Way to go, Chris. Mm-hmm. Um, check out the attached pick. A full-on dust storm on final. Three questions if you have time for one or all. One, winds were gusting to 50 knots, 15 degrees crosswind. Wind shear was plus 20 on final. Our pilots handled it confidently while I observed another flight approaching the parallel runway. You can always go around. He didn't sing it, but he put it. He wrote that. Along with several other inbound flights, are the stabilized approach guidelines different for each airline or based on the aircraft? We were in an uh, E-175 jungle jet, um, Embraer. The go, the go around was a Boeing 737. I guess we can take each one as we go here. So um, what was the question? Or, or uh, stabilized approach guidelines different for each airline? I think they may be, you know, a little tweaked a little bit differently, but I think uh, most of the major uh, criteria for stabilized approaches is, is probably common uh, with all the, the world's airlines, wouldn't you say, Captain Nick? Yeah, I think they're all very similar. They're type dependent because uh, you know some of them may have a speed regime which you have to achieve, and of course that is definitely going to be type dependent. Uh, and I suspect Every airline that has its own individual one will have that procedure um, checked and confirmed as being acceptable by their authority, in our case, Civil Aviation Authority, in your case, the FAA, who examine all the company's documents and decide that everything written in them is uh, suitable. So, uh, yeah, they're all much of a muchness, but uh, I think you're right. Uh, Every uh, airline will probably have a small tweak that is uh, relative to their operation. And I want to take this this question to a different uh, place and that is what, uh, you know, there are two things I think that are, are, are key here. One being that it's a parallel runway. So the possibility uh, that the conditions on that runway may not have been as severe for the, you know, the 737 that was on final, right? So he may have been on the parallel runway that was closer to that weather. And two is, you know, it's really up to the captain to, to really decide based on the criteria in which we're trained to as to whether to continue or, or discontinue the uh, the approach. So maybe what he was seeing on his parallel runway was a little bit different than what the 737 captain was And um, as we know also that uh, the the wind shear detection right. system on that airplane may be a little bit more sensitive than the one on the airplane that you were on, um, or the one that you may have been on a little bit more sophisticated and can uh, filter out um, false wind shear uh you know, alarms and that kind of thing. So there, there are a lot of different things that could uh, be in play here, I think. Yeah, I think so. And in Denver, you know, for, for parallel runways, it looks like the aircraft is closer. But I mean, if you're on the, you know, let's say, for example, on the east arrival, run, you know, the east side of the airport arrival runways to versus the parallel uh, runways on the, the west side, uh, it's a significant uh, difference. I mean, I think it's what probably close to two miles difference in they're pretty far apart on the one sevens. Yeah. yeah. The one fixes are closer together and just based, well, based on where the wind or the dust storm looks like it's coming from in the lovely picture that he attached. It's a great, mm-hmm. great photo, Chris. In the show notes. Um, uh, yeah, take a look at it. Um, I would guess that they are landing to the south, probably on one of the one sixes. Um, and you're kind of seeing the edge of Denver there because the wind is probably coming off of the front range uh, towards them. Mm-hmm. 
kind of from the the and you can see the sun bit. as well so it might be uh, the yep, exactly. late afternoon so that's that's another good big key giveaway sure. i'm sorry i think i was talking over you say that again dana I'm sorry. No, no. I'm, I, I started as you. I thought you were finishing. I said, "Yeah, big dead giveaways that the sun seems to be setting in the southwest sky." So that's right. Giveaway that they're laying south. Yep. Sure. All right. Uh, second question he has. I felt the need to approach the cockpit when disembarking and compliment the pilots on their landing. They seemed giddy and actually wanted to talk about it. But I wonder: Do pilots generally like passengers critiquing them, or is it? offensive since landing the plane safely is an expectation it depends how nice you are yeah depends on the critique yeah <laughs> yeah and how much money you're going to give them that's a good point you know. we do accept tips by the way uh, yeah i certainly did i um, never got me but i was yeah me neither them. i actually had a styrofoam cup with tips written on it and held it while people were deplaning and nobody left are you me sure one. you spelled that right i might not have <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that explains all the dirty looks. Uh, dang it. Yeah. <laughs> or I spelled it backwards. Spit. Spit. <laughs> and they went, ooh, stay away from that. <laughs> oh, boy. You know, uh, it, this is my take on that is that if, if you come up with a really snide, stupid, uh, demoralizing type of comment, you know, what are you, you an Air Force, you know, you a Navy guy? Oh, yeah, you hear that all the time. You know, I hate that comment. And people, it's not funny. It's not funny. So, it's or, always you know, funny. I'm going to chiropractor after that one. I mean, now I'm retired. I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Can I see my <laughs> dentist about these fillings you knocked out of my teeth? Yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, if, if, they're, if they're cordial and, you know, and, and actually seem like they have somewhat of a clue. I mean, I'm sure, uh, I'm sure with how many miles that you do, Chris. Uh, you know, you can probably have an intelligent conversation on that. And certainly, you know, anytime anybody wants to talk about it, always willing to, 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 uh, talk about it as long as it's not a, a derogatory remark. Yeah. And you know, the fact that they understood this, the situation was a difficult situation to land in and the fact that you were actually saying something nice about it. I mean, that we welcome that all the time. You know, that kind of appreciation is, uh, definitely welcomed. Really, pilots like compliments? Yeah, can you believe that? <laughs> yeah. All right. I'm actually more insulted when I have a perfect landing, you know, the absolutely grease job, and nobody says one thing when they get off the airplane. I know. I'm like, man, that's fine. like one of the best landings I've had ever, and not one person says great. You know, I know. Nice but you're usually your fellow pilot uh, will say something when you if you grease one on. I was going to say, how do you know you've never done one? <laughs> oh boy all right i'll i'll edit that and post and make it closer to the <laughs> joke point um anyway i do that a lot actually because of my latency um item three while talking with the crew the first officer who was flying the plane said that the cockpit escape hatch plastic cover came off and hit his head during the rollout Quote, because of the landing and yaw. And he says, gosh, it wasn't that bad. Have any of you ever had a distraction or issue like that during a critical phase of flight? Thanks, as always, for your amazing time and energy that you put into this podcast. Let your, quote, wheels up time be at zero, zero, now, Zulu. Chris, class, bravo, Chris, private pilot from Kilo, Sierra, Quebec, Lima. And uh, we have determined that is a 
an airport in the Bay Area, California, and uh, um, forgot exactly which one it is now. But um, so to answer your third question, I think the reason why he had that reaction um, or he said that about the yaw, Chris, and you thought it wasn't that bad, is that some airplanes, and apparently this is one that is like that, and I can tell you that the 727 was notorious because the um, the panels that hold the uh, oxygen masks up, and the, these are oxygen masks that weren't, you know, like the kind that we have in modern airplanes where they're the oxygen generators, but they actually had a couple of big tanks of oxygen that fed through lines to each of the seat positions. Anyway, so I think it was a little bit heavier or whatever, but these these panels, um, if the airplane landed, and it could be a, actually feel like a pretty good landing, but if the airplane was in any kind of yaw at all, that was enough to kind of make the panels not stay in position, if, if that make any sense. Because like, it, it's, it's, it's plastic, basically. Yeah, so if it, so it, it warps, shifts position a little bit, warps a little bit, it can jostle it And open. if it's just anything, even not even a really hard landing, a, a firm landing, then that's when you get the, what do we call it, the orange jungle in the back. Um, or what do you call it? The uh, orchard? Didn't you the, orchard? the orchard, yeah, that's a... Another term that people use. Ha <laughs> so funny. Um, a rubber jungle. rubber jungle. Rubber jungle. Yeah, that's another one. But uh, so that, I think that um, if that plastic hatch is anything like that and, and the, the fuselage on that airplane, you know, has any yaw at all, perhaps that's just enough to allow that piece to fall down. But uh, any, any experiences, Dana, of uh, something that happened in a critical phase of flight that was very distracting? Sure. I mean, just think about the fact that we... Uh, like to hydrate and have those bottles of water. Mm-hmm. Certainly, if it's in the wrong position when you touch down and uh, uh, have a first officer that likes to slam on the brakes for whatever reason, uh, you know, those, nah, that never happens ever. Yeah. Um, no, it does, unfortunately. And I always kind of go, why did you ruin your landing by slamming the brakes on? It actually happened last night. So uh, beautiful, absolutely per- picture perfect landing last night. And he slams on the brakes to make the taxiway when we still have to wait three minutes to let the engines cool down before we get to the gate. Yeah. So anyways, uh, the, the moral story, is, yeah. <clears throat> you know, there, there are situations in which I've had, uh, you know, either my cell phone, unfortunately uh, go flying or, or, you know, and I'm worried. And the biggest worry I have is that something gets lodged into the, uh, rudder pedals when I'm trying to take control of the aircraft as we're slowing down. So, you know, that big bottle of water, if it goes flying and, you know, on, a, on an abrupt stop, um, I've had that happen to me where I've been trying to stop it from going anywhere further. So, certainly. Um, yeah. Uh, usually for us, it was not water bottles, uh, Dana, but, uh, you know, on the uh, top of descent, we usually get afternoon tea. So we get, uh, you know, uh, nice scones and jam and fresh cream and a uh, few cups of tea and some uh, nice little sandwiches with the crusts cut off uh, and some fairy cakes and a few other bits and bobs. And when you've finished all that, you've got this great pile of crockery behind you, which when you're in the descent, you kind of uh, get a bit busy. You kind of forget about, and the girls are supposed to remember to pop in and tidy it away, but they busy too, tidying up the cabin. And exactly right, even on a normal touchdown and breaking, that lot will slide off onto the floor with the most humongous crash. And uh, it'll uh, really give you a bit of a start. So uh, that's not ideal. But for me, the two things that uh, really came out of the blue were uh, hitting a damn great big bird on the approach into uh, 
uh, Hong Kong, and the noise that that made when it smacked off the nose really <laughs> that really woke us all up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, tootling along on a very boring uh, departure out of Heathrow when, you know, a bolt of lightning just decided to reach out a couple of miles and smack the nose of the aircraft with a big boom and a flash. Yeah, that uh, woke us up, particularly since the ECAM went a bit mad and uh, decided to tell us we'd lost an engine at the same time. So, we, in fact, we hadn't. It was uh, just one of those few electrical wigglies that went around the FADEC, I would guess. But uh, we, after a while, realized that it was still running fine, had the engineers look it over and decided not to do much about it, just carry on regardless. But those, uh, those are the sort of things that, uh, yeah, they give you a bit of a start. So just thinking specifically about land, I've got two real quick ones here. Um, well, I think I still have the audio that I got from Live ATC for this one. Um, but I was out, I forget exactly what we were doing. I think I was, um, I think I was doing some instrument currency stuff, shooting approaches because I had an instructor with me. Um, and coming in for the last landing of the evening, it was starting to get kind of late, a little bit on the dark side after dusk. Um, last approach coming in, this was just a VFR approach. I think we actually were doing, um, might have been nighttime, and I was actually doing my night recurrency too after we did our instrument approaches. Um, but anyway, uh, right over the uh, the threshold of the runway and towered airport and uh, controller comes on really loud um, that this particular aircraft there is, or air, at this particular airport, excuse me, there are uh, there is one airline that uh, has some scheduled service, and really loud to get their attention says their call sign says immediately check your altitude, low altitude alert. But it was so loud, and I was like just kind of transitioning to like you know fl- like getting everything set up, and totally startled me. I was not expecting to hear that quite so loud in my and you know you have that moment of like oh my god is he talking to me? No, he's not talking to me. But, um, so that was interesting. And uh, the other one was, um, everyone is familiar with my my dogs, Taco and Truman. Before they were around, there was Hooch, who was quite a bit larger than my current dogs. Um, and he did go flying with me on several occasions. And he was always super well behaved the first time we did it. Um, I had a friend go with me because I wasn't sure how he was going to respond to it in the back of a small aircraft. Um, we had him in a harness attached to the seatbelt, back of a 172. Did great, super. Next few times, same thing. Third time landing in Asheville, again at night, you know, 50 feet off the ground. He decides to kind of stick his nose because he could, he was so big, even though he was harnessed and attached to the seatbelt, he could get his head right next to me. And it was like, oh, hello, there you are. <laughs> but he was very well behaved, but got my attention. I was not expecting his, you know, all of a sudden it was like hot dog breath, like right in your face. <laughs> It's hot like, dog breath what or is, hot dog? What do you think of the landing? Rough. 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 It's a rough landing. Oh, that's that very cute. There we go. <laughs> I mean, I, I do do have one other uh, instance that I could talk about, mm-hmm. and that was lack. Remember the happy controller in, in Atlanta? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, Quite the opposite. Yeah. 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 Not very happy at all. Well, he failed to uh, to uh, tell or update the information, so quite the surprise uh, version of it, not quite in the landing portion of it. But, uh, you know, we always train in the simulator to go ahead and be able to hand-fly the airplane. 
you know, down to minimums at, you know, at least our minimums uh, as a first officer at that point was, you know, um, I write down a cat one minimums. Well, so I'm shooting the approach and the last report that I had was 800 overcast. And so I clicked off the autopilot about a thousand feet. Ah, you know, it's no big deal. We'll fly the airplane down. Yeah, next thing you know, here the uh, the auto call out five hundred. And like, well, where's the runway? Where's my environment? I'm at you know now below the eight hundred foot uh, visible visibility, and uh, I mean eight hundred foot ceiling with with good visibility. And uh, the air traffic controller that was working that day was the happy controller there, uh, Mister Happy. And he didn't bother to tell us that it had gone right down to cat one minimums. So talking about hand flying down to cat one minimums and actual and not being prepared for it, uh, that was quite an enlightening experience because that's the first time I had actually had to do it without even knowing about it. So we broke out right at minimums. I mean, quite literally, my hands were on the go to toga buttons as cap called minimums runway in sight, the closest. And of course, the visibility had gone down to you know, three quarters of a mile. Mm -hmm. So he didn't tell us about any of this. So, of course, now the adrenaline's pumping because now I hand flew the airplane to minimums unknowing, not ready for it, not really thinking about it. And now I'm at minimums. And what's the number one thing they tell you in the sim not to do? Um, Jeff? Crash. Yeah, no. crash. <laughs> no, 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 he's no. right. What? No, no, it's crash. right, but not crash. But the other, the other one is, is that, you know, you keep your scan going. You don't want to transition to the outside environment. So mm -hmm. I had to keep myself in that that mode so that I didn't start popping up on the glide slope and ending up high, right? So you want to keep coming down towards the runway. So all this stuff is happening. And I tell you what, it took me a few moments after we touched down and, you know, we started taxiing off the runway that, that that adrenaline rush finally calmed down a little bit because it wasn't, it wasn't what I was expecting. It was a completely unexpected situation. I was in one of those situations doing the LDA, the Rosalind LDA approach for oh, runway 19 at DCA. And when I started hearing some of those low call outs, I'm thinking, huh? <laughs> like, I still don't see anything. <laughs> and then luckily I caught a glimpse of the Potomac and I thought, okay, got the river in sight. We're good. Was it above you or below you? It was uh, below. Yeah. Oh, that's okay. That, that's that always a good shot. Yeah, if it's <laughs> yeah. above you, that's, that's always a good visual. <laughs> um, and uh, the other thing I... If it's above you, your name was Sully. <laughs> true. Um, so one of those things that happens on occasion is uh, like a bee or a wasp or something like that flying around the cockpit. And fortunately for me, it's never occurred at one of those critical moments, like during takeoff or landing. But, you know, during climb out or whatever, you know, it gets your attention. It does distract you quite a bit when one of these things is flying around and you think it's going to sting you or whatever. So... Yeah, happens on occasion. Okay, well, I've told this so, little one. Uh, that's before, when you say, "Let please, it be." Uh, <laughs> oh boy! So please excuse me, but uh, taking off out of uh, Lagos in Nigeria, looking down at the speed, reading out a hundred knots, looking back up, and there's a guy walking across the <laughs> runway in front of me. Nice. But that caught my attention. Yes, that would definitely catch your <laughs> Not attention. Not what you expect. Yeah, and no. that's one of those things where it catches your attention, but it's so out of the ordinary. It takes you a moment to process it, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Maybe, maybe not, but you go, uh, oh, oh, I'm supposed what? to not run over this guy. <laughs> you know, and there's that like pause because it's just so oh, I was trying to work out how I was not going to run over. Well, yeah. yeah. Actually, he broke into a trot and just cleared by the mm. time uh, we Good got to grief. it. That, that would uh, create quite a bit of paperwork. Yeah. Mm. 
Yeah. On a side note, the past few episodes, references to Blazing Saddles has come up with Nick saying, I believe, it's true, it's true. And I really want to point something out about that film. During that uh, particular episode, when they were um, filming that, in order to maintain its M rating, because back then it wasn't PG, it was M, and not to go to an R rating, they had to cut a line out that was going to come right after that line. It's true. It's true. And that line that was cut out, it'll be perfectly fine on here, was, pardon me, ma'am, but you're kissing my arm. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> now... That is true that that line is a prominent line in um, Blazing Saddles, but I think uh, our reference is a more modern one, Micah, to um, a uh, mother and daughter team uh, doing their own video podcast and uh, the daughter saying, it's true, it's true. That's, that's correct. Yeah. That's true. It's true. But that's probably but also a great from. movie reference. Oh, yeah. I love that. That was one of the best uh, scenes, I think, in the Blazing Saddles. I never saw it. Sorry. Oh, come on. Oh, what? Get out of my house. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to get fed that wonderful meal tonight. Sorry, Dana. <laughs> well, you are. You're just going to have to watch Blazing Saddles during the movie or during the yeah, dinner. <laughs> oh. All right. See you, Dana. Well, bye, Dana. Anyway. Have a nice flight home. He's actually leaving. We're watching the video. He's opening the front door. He can't get out the front door. He's you can come back. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's coming back now. Okay, um, and he uh, gives us a postscript. I use Zoom for my work webinars. Never had an audio or video or connection problem. Check it out if you're not happy with your current setup. Well, we will, Chris. However, we are very happy with our current setup, StreamYard. And again, those StreamYard people, thank you very much for the hard work and uh, uh, continuing to um, make great improvements and such. So. Um, thank you, Chris, class Bravo, Chris, for your feedback. It generated a lot of good discussion. Um, item three from Greg. I thought this was a noteworthy story, but the main reason I'm sending in the feedback is because of the picture at the bottom of the article. Your airplane just had an uncontained engine failure, but let's get everyone together for a group photo standing in the firefighting foam. Seems like an odd image you would want to put out for your airline. And so he gives us a link from samchewy.com. And this is from uh, Greg, very large donkey Peterson. Um, In the chat room, I believe. Yes, he is. Uh, what, it, his donkey? Yeah. Um, it just makes it easier for me um, post-editing. <laughs> speaking the, of, where did mine go? He was here. Oh, I don't know. That's fanny. Weird. Where's your Fanny? Where's Fanny? Fanny. <laughs> I'll have to find yeah, Fanny. I've, he came oh, across the somehow Atlantic. over here, and I don't know why. Oh, hang on. Let's see. Oh, it must be a different Fanny. <sighs> they're they're siblings. Ah, okay. long lost, separated at birth, twins. Uh, <laughs> okay. just, sorry, I was reaching for Jeff my Fanny. Just had a hernia. <laughs> <laughs> so here's my Fanny. Okay. All right. Um. Okay. Now, oh, it's, he's looking the wrong way. General around so you can see his button is button your face. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and sorry for not getting that mute on. I was it's trying to find to get get to the mute button uh, a lot quicker than that, and I do apologize for that. That's why I when you muted, I unmuted because you had already just muted me. No problem. No problem. So here we are. Um, are you sure you're a pilot? No, but I'm not good with computers because I fly an MD88. <laughs> this is okay. true. 
So let's get to this article that Greg sent in. Uh, an Ethiopian Airlines Boeing 767 was climbing out of Blase Diagne. <laughs> Blaze. Nailed it. <laughs> Blaze Diagne. How would you say that last one? That word? No idea. It's Blaze Diagne. Blaze Diagne. Blaze Diagne. International Airport uh, on the 8th of October when its right-hand engine failed. Uh, passengers reported a loud bang with smoke pouring into the cabin shortly thereafter. Anyway, it talks about, um, you know, successfully bringing it back in pictures of the, um, uncontained engine failure. looks like the, uh, some part of the turbine section, uh, that just let go. But as you said, uh, the thing that's just kind of weird about this is, and I thought the same thing when I was looking at this picture, aren't they concerned about their shoes and all that toxic firefighting foam they're standing in? In front of the uh, failed engine, I don't know. It is interesting, Greg. I agree. What do you guys think? You see the photo? Yeah, a little uh, messy. Yeah, I think the bloke in the middle kind of sense. Well, like he's taking his shoes off. How's he? That's better. See him bare feet. Oh, that it uh, looks like it. That it makes it easier for the chemicals to shoes. to be tra- you know go <laughs> into your, yeah yeah <laughs> be absorbed by your skin. Ah, <sighs> anyway, all right. Um, Thank you. I must admit, I'd, I'd pose in front of my burning airplane if I had a chance. <laughs> <laughs> it would be a fun photo, wouldn't it? <laughs> I like the one where he's, uh, I think it's the captain trying to tell me stripes are on his epaulets there, but underneath the uh, engine there, kind of inspecting it so you can mm-hmm. see the where the fire was on the one side, and then he's kind of traipsing around in the foam underneath, too. Yeah. Yeah. I think with his phone, getting his pictures. Um, exactly. it, it's, is that actually part of the jet pipe or is that actually a beam, the turbine, do you think? I don't know this engine well. I I mean, I think the fan and compressor section and the uh, fan is not too far forward from there. I, I think it's kind of like the middle section. I think you can kind of see a little bit of the tailpipe uh, to the left of the photo, but I don't know. I, I could be wrong about that. Yeah. I was just wondering if whether if whether it was uh, blade damage or whether that was just burned through by the fire. Oh, I don't know, but it was. They did say it was an uncontained failure. Yeah, so. I I had an interesting discussion with people, or uh, what read an interesting discussion about how you define uncontained or not. I mean, do yeah. you actually need to uh, have uh, blade separation and? that is not contained uh if you have a fierce enough uh fire against the skin of that part of the engine it just burns through is that uncontained if nothing from the engine has come out through the hole hmm. it, want- it, go ahead dana i was going to say it based on the photograph i'm seeing i wouldn't say that the engine had uh, an uncontained failure as much as it was just a burn through because it's too consistent uh of a uh, a pattern here that would would indicate more of a burn through than, than it would of a failure of any of the internal engine parts. That could be. And that, that's Nick's point as well. Maybe is Max Flight still with us in the chat room, our Pratt & Whitney spokesperson? Oh, official. yes, Max, yeah. is, Max is yeah. there. Um, yeah. Max, I don't give know. us your professional opinion. Yeah. Well, while he... he... Can he see the picture? I don't think he can see the picture. Let me see ah. if I can... Uh... Can you see it on the screen? Oh, okay. Here, let me see if I can do yeah, that. This is where it all goes to part. It's it all takes, going so well. It takes mm-hmm. so much work to do this, but I'm going to do it because it's the kind of guy I am. <laughs> um, it's a technical challenge, and Jeff loves uh, a technical challenge. Well, see, I'm using two different um, MacBooks, and the one that is doing hosting the stream, I have to now open up 
that item in the... Don't cross the streams. Um, okay. Don't cross the streams. Thank you. That's exactly <laughs> what I was thinking. We're, we're going to the danger zone now. We no, are in the no, danger uh, zone. Yeah, because somebody or, next to me doesn't like that movie, so I just had to use that word. Yeah, we, we know. Max says uh, containment refers to metal coming out of the engine. Oh, good, good man, Max. That's what I reckon. I, I, I watched all these idiots try and say, well, it's got a hole in it, so it must be uncontained. I'm going, well, even though he's answered it, I'm going to show it anyway. Oh, there we go. Yeah, I, I, I don't think it's uncontained. I don't know if I could say from that picture whether any metal came out of yeah, it. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what liquid, the, uh, maybe liquid like metal hole that uh, um, would have been caused by flying debris, uh, particularly at the speed of heat that mm -hmm. those turbines were around at. It's almost like it's plasma temperature that's just burning right through it. It's just really hot. Yeah, that's what I read. But and, and there's the uh, picture. Of... I'm not even a pilot anymore. Uh... <laughs> Once a pilot, always a pilot. Here's the <laughs> can't photo. Get, can't get rid of that. Photo of the um, of the uh, ARFF crew and uh, cabin crew, and I don't see any pilots in this one. Yeah, but no, she's they... just standing there in heels in that gook. And she's uh, and the way she has her legs crossed, perfect. Isn't that nice? Yeah, perfect. Good picture. It, it, work it, work it. This yep. this may not, of course, be the sort of chemicals you guys used to. It might be water and um, washing up liquid. It could be like dish, yeah. dishwashing detergent. Yep. Yeah. Max Dawn. says it looks more Dawn like a water. fire. Max says it looks more like a fire from a broken fuel or oil line. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm. Well, there you go. There you have it. Thank you, Max. Okay. Thank you, Max and Greg. For... Nice to have you on board. Yes. Yeah, it would be great to have him here more often. You might get up to 65, 70%. What would we do with that? Come on. I don't on. know that we can cope. Yeah. No. We don't want to go all crazy now. on a pedestal and all that. All right. Well, are we getting close to the uh, two hour point? We are. Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's time it for time. I think then yes. it's a great time for us to do this week's installment of the old pilot's plane tale. Gin time. The Old Pilot's Plane Tales Pursuit Across the Channel People may think that Britain's recent attempts to separate from the rest of Europe is a new thing, but in reality, it was a struggle that started around 10,000 years ago, when, during the Devensian glaciation period, two glacial lakes breached and flooded the Weald Artois anticline. The first flood lasted several months, releasing around one million cubic meters of water per second. This and subsequent mega-floods scoured out the channel and destroyed the ridge that joined Britain to continental Europe. Since then, Britain has, more or less, been an island. The English Channel that forms the aquatic barrier between southern England and France has been an important feature in British history and prevented several interlopers from getting a foothold on our green and pleasant lands. Some of the most noteworthy being the defeat of the Spanish Armada by Sir Francis Drake in 1588, 
the occasion when Admiral Lord Nelson took control of the Channel during the Battle of Trafalgar, securing Britain against an invasion by the Little Corporal during the Napoleonic Wars, and Operation Sea Lion, the aborted Nazi invasion by another corporal during the Second World War. Of course, it wasn't entirely successful as a barricade, or we wouldn't have a considerable smattering of Latin, thanks to Julius Caesar, some German from the Angles and Saxons, and a measure of Norman French, courtesy of William the Conqueror. But without them, we wouldn't have the rich language that gives us a modicum of sense, ale to drink, or a wicket to use in the great game of cricket. At only 18.2 nautical miles, that's 21 statute miles, 38,000 yards, 35,000 metres, or 114,000 feet, at its narrowest, between Dover and Calais, known as the Straits of Dover, or the Pas de Calais, depending on which side you stand. Just remember who was victorious at Waterloo, my Gallic friends. On a clear day, it's quite possible to see the opposite coastline from either side, and the territorial waters of both Britain and France overlap by a few miles in the middle. Such has been the historic significance of this small stretch of water, it's hardly surprising that crossing it, in various ways, has been a test of endeavour for centuries. Crossing it by air, however, has been a relatively recent trick, first achieved by, oh the shame of it, an American and a Frenchman. Whilst we're probably aware that the Montgolfier brothers were the first humans to ascend in a hot air balloon, their achievement was followed by a vast wave of balloonomania which swept France. Clothing fashions changed to produce balloon-like puffed sleeves and round skirts in their honour, and hair was coiffed a la Montgolfier. It also heralded a generation of balloonists, including Jean-Pierre Blanchard, keen to experiment in this new science of aeronautics. When getting airborne from Paris in his first hydrogen-lifted balloon, the flight nearly ended in disaster when a spectator, a contemporary of Napoleon, Dupont de Chamont attacked the mooring ropes with his sword after being refused a place on board. Perhaps the world's first display of air rage. Blanchard was going to manoeuvre his balloon with oars, but despite his attempts to row the aerostat around, it just went where the wind took it. Having moved to England to demonstrate his new flying skills, he was still trying to direct his device, this time using more sophisticated propulsion mechanisms, flapping wings and a windmill. On his third flight, on the 7th of January 1785, he took off with an American from Boston, the physician, scientist and military surgeon who served with the British Army during the American Revolution, Dr John Jeffries. Setting off from Dover Castle, the wind carried them out over the channel, 
but nearing the French coast, weighed down by extraneous supplies such as anchors, a useless hand-operated propeller, and silk-covered oars with which they hoped they could row their way through the air, the two balloonists were forced to throw nearly everything out of the balloon. Blanchard even threw his trousers over the side in a desperate but successful attempt to lighten the ship. Those must have been some trousers. One other thing that was dropped from the balloon was a letter that Jeffreys had penned, which is now considered the oldest piece of airmail in existence. John Jeffreys was also a renowned weather observer, and in the United States his birthday on the 5th of February is celebrated by weather forecasters and storm chasers alike as the National Weather Person's Day. Blanchard's first manned crossing of the Channel by air was conducted only a few days after an attempt by the French inventor Jean-Francois Pilatre de Rosier, who, along with his co-passenger, sorry, a pilot, a French army officer, were killed when their balloon caught fire during an attempted crossing. Rosier used hydrogen combined with hot air as a lifting gas despite knowing the dangers. He apparently had gulped a mouthful of hydrogen which he then blew across an open flame, proving at a stroke, as Bill Bryson amusingly put it, that hydrogen is indeed explosively combustible and that eyebrows are not necessarily a permanent feature of one's face. Rosier and his colleagues are also entered into the history books as the world's first fatal victims of an air accident. Blanchard's flight took only two and a half hours, something to think about the next time your London to Paris flight is delayed. And on landing, he was awarded a substantial pension by Louis XVI. The king also ordered that the balloon and boat that served as a gondola be hung up in the Église Notre-Dame de Calais. I'd be fascinated to know if any of it still hangs there. The first crossing by a heavier-than-air machine was by another Frenchman, Louis Blériot, flying the rather presumptuously named Blériot 11. Blériot had caught the aviation bug and built a number of experimental aircraft, many of which he crashed, but luckily he survived without major injury, even when he had an engine failure at a height of around 25 metres over 80 feet. The aircraft had entered a spiralling nosedive, and in desperation, Blériot climbed out of his seat and threw himself towards the tail. By shifting the centre of gravity, he caused the aircraft to partially pull out of the dive, and it came to earth in a more or less horizontal attitude. Not a technique I would recommend to any budding pilots listening. By the time he got to number 11, he had a pretty good design. In fact, quite an advanced one for the time. Having already made some very successful long-distance flights, despite receiving third-degree burns on one of them when the asbestos insulation on the engine's exhaust came loose. The heat burned through his shoe, and despite being in considerable pain, Blériot flew for 30 minutes in this state and was only brought to earth when his engine failed. 
The injury took over two months to heal. The temptation to cross the channel came from a prize being offered by the Daily Mail. It had recently been doubled from £500 to £1,000, and there were a considerable number of contenders, including Wilbur Wright, for this princely sum. Hubert Latham was the first to try, but the engine of his Antoinette 4 monoplane failed only six miles from his destination, and his entry into the record books was a less than remarkable one for being the first aircraft to ditch at sea. It was early on the morning of July the 25th, 1909, when Blériot woke. He was feeling a bit pessimistic about the weather, but after a good breakfast, his spirits rose enough to make the attempt. His wife embarked on the French destroyer Escopet, which was to escort the flight, and after a quick test flight, Blériot took off from France and set off for England, at a couple of hundred feet over the water. Not having a compass, he was relying on the ship to guide him, but he soon overtook it and was alone over the water and in poor visibility. He wrote, For more than ten minutes I was alone, isolated, lost in the midst of the immense sea, and I did not see anything on the horizon or a single ship. The poor visibility and rain did help a little by keeping his engine cool, and eventually he spied the white cliffs of Dover. Sadly, the gusty conditions made his landing less than perfect, and he damaged his undercarriage and broke his propeller, but he was safely down. The flight had taken a mere 36 minutes and 30 seconds, and earned him 27 pounds and 8 shillings a minute. The flight made Blériot and his impressive moustache an overnight celebrity and brought success to his aircraft manufacturing company. The British, feeling a bit put out that all the success was coming from the other side of the channel, rather belatedly entered the record books with the first double crossing when Charles Rolls, of Rolls-Royce fame, took off on June the 2nd, 1910, in his right flyer, and flew for 95 minutes, making the non-stop flight over to France and back, which included the first eastbound crossing, a feat that earned him the Royal Aero Club's gold medal. Sadly, Rolls was to enter the history books later, at the young age of 32, as the first Briton to be killed in a powered aircraft when the tail of his right flyer broke off during a display he was performing at Bournemouth. By that time, ten others had died in various aircraft accidents around the globe. Out of interest, the Honourable Charles Stuart Rolls only sported a small, well-trimmed moustache. Later, the same year as Rolls' record flight, the first passenger aircraft crossing was made, this time by the American pilot John Moissant in his two-seat Blériot 11. His passengers consisted of Albert Philo, his engineer, and Moissant's tabby cat, Mademoiselle Fifi. Moissant had proclaimed himself the king of aviators, but had very little experience. Indeed, his crossing of the channel was only his sixth flight. Only four months later, he was to die making a preparatory flight 
in his attempt to win the 1910 Michelin Cup for the longest sustained flight. He was attempting to land near New Orleans when a gust of wind threw him from his aircraft and he fell 25 feet, landing on his head, which was unadorned by a moustache, breaking his neck. It didn't take long for the ladies to catch up when in 1912 Harriet Quimby took off from Dover and, 59 minutes later, landed on a beach about 25 miles from Calais. The press had dubbed her the Dresden China Aviatrix because of her petite stature and fair skin and being one of the very few lady pilots she earned a considerable amount for professional appearances flying her blerio. She apparently capitalised on her femininity by wearing trousers tucked into high lace boots accentuated by a plum-coloured satin blouse, necklace and antique bracelet. She drew crowds wherever she competed in cross-country meets and races until later in 1912 when she was flying William Willard, the organiser of the third annual Boston Aviation Meet. At an altitude of 1,000 feet, the aircraft unexpectedly pitched violently forwards. Both Willard and Quimby were thrown from their seats and fell to their deaths, whilst the pilotless plane glided down and lodged itself in the mud. The First World War brought some less welcome crossings when the first airship, a Zeppelin, made its way over to bomb Britain. But in happier times after the war, some more interesting flights were made. The first autogyro crossed in 1928, flown by the Spanish pilot Juan de la Sierra, first count of La Sierra. Again, a Channel Crossing record holder was to die in an aviation accident, but this time it was more conventional when the count perished in a KLM DC-2 crash. The aircraft hit a house during a takeoff from Croydon Airfield. Neither Harriet Quimby nor the first count of La Sierra had a moustache. The first glider pilot to achieve a successful crossing was Lissant Beardmore, who, despite his name, only wore a very short moustache of the type favoured by a particular German dictator. In his aircraft, named Sandra and sporting a Union flag and an Automobile Association badge, how the AA were going to help him start his glider I'm not sure, he was desperate to ensure that a British citizen was the first to achieve this milestone. Apparently on June the 20th 1932 an Austrian was going to attempt a double crossing to win a £1,000 Daily Express prize so Beardmore took off from Limp the day before. He was towed aloft by an Avro 504 to 12,000 feet before being cast off over Folkestone to secure for Britain the honour of the first crossing. Sadly, in his rush to beat the Austrian to the honour of the achievement, Beardmore failed to take a barograph and obtain official observers, so the British Gliding Association never officially recognised the flight. 
However, in keeping with others who have claimed a Channel Crossing flight record, Lisand Beardmore was to perish in a flying accident at Reading in June of 1936. The first helicopter to fly across this short stretch of water was a German wartime machine captured at the end of the Second World War. The US intended to bring captured aircraft back to the States on board ship, but only had room for one example of the Fock Archgelis FA-223 Drach Dragon, and intended to destroy the others. The RAF objected, and with the aid of the Luftwaffe helicopter test pilot Helmut Gerstenhauer plus two observers, they flew the machine from Cherbourg to RAF Bewley in Hampshire, thereby, almost by accident, claiming the record. The channel has been crossed many more times in various flying machines since, including a human-powered aircraft in 1979, an electric aircraft in 1981, free fall in a wingsuit in 2003, by jetpack in 2008, and a flying car in 2017. I'm glad to say that most of the more recent record breakers are still walking amongst us. The state of their upper lips, sadly, remains something of a mystery. If you enjoyed this story, we did. Leave us a review on your so, podcaster of choice. Plain tales yes. a yeah, I'm just trying to trying to decide how to come over here and turn all of our video back on. <laughs> That ended a little bit faster than I thought it was going to. Just keep pressing buttons. Yeah, I know. I've been trying to do something here. Um, all right. So, yeah. Ooh, how embarrassing. <laughs> yes. All right. Uh, remove from stream. There we go. Okay. Hi. Hello. 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 There you guys are. Um, what I was trying Where to do, I was trying, I just noticed a comment in the, um, in the uh, chat room, on the YouTube chat room, and uh, somebody was um, mentioning that she did not have a spanner. So I was With trying Myla. to. I know. Um, so I was trying to take care of that, and then all of a sudden you were starting to end your <laughs> PT and went, ah, darn it. Ah, well. There's got to be something to do with priorities there, but I, for the moment I can't think what. I was actually thinking more his ability to multitask. That too. Mm. Yes. It's not as easy as it looks, folks. Not as easy as it oh, looks. Oh, even with a mustache that fine? Yeah. So what is uh, the connection then? Uh, did you do some kind of scientific research on, was it uh, a lower number of people crashing that had mustaches or? What? I was just taken by uh, the mustaches of the early crosses because they are very impressive. And uh, sadly, uh, the um, number of decent uh, moustaches dwindled with the years. So I thought it was just very sad, apart from the fact they kept killing themselves. That was also very sad. But um, no, exactly. Many sad things, yes. Uh, I, I couldn't form any real conclusion as to the success of moustache-bearing crosses. Okay, I thought you were you were trying to make some kind of correlation happen there. If only I had achieved it. No, yeah. it just seemed like uh, a an interesting observation. 
Well, I can say right now that uh, those of us with mustaches in on the uh, video uh, and on this uh, audio podcast at this moment uh, outnumber the uh, those that do not have them. That's yeah. very true. I feel so left out right now. So sad. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, Steph. I, I might point out that uh, the first crosser, his moustache was so fine, it actually uh, went beyond the width of his head. Wow. Stuck out a long way. Is considered cheating? I mean, is there any aerodynamic force from... <laughs> yeah, I was curious yeah, to know that, that, whether... But in a balloon, I don't know. Uh, yeah. You're not really piloting it anyway. You're just floating <laughs> oh, along, you know, just letting the wind take you. <laughs> so... Oh boy. All right. Well, ex another excellent one. Thank you, Nick, for that. Oh, I loved it. That was great fun looking at that one up. Thanks. Yeah. I love all the, the historical stuff to it, the very onset. Mm -hmm. Just yeah, I, I was a, a bit dismayed by the poor lady pilot who uh, managed to fall out of her aircraft along with the person that was running the air show, Willard. And for a thousand feet, oh my God! Hmm. Yeah, that's yeah. Perhaps if she'd worn a skirt, she might have survived. I don't it's know. Like trousers tucked into her boots. Is that what? Yeah, she was? that that wouldn't have provided a lot of drag, sadly. I just still don't understand exactly how, with all those double crossings going on, how could how they could trust one another? <laughs> <laughs> yes, very good point. I was thinking that the same thing actually. Point, right? <laughs> that's why we have you here yeah. today. All right. Okay. Um, I think we should move on, try to get some more feedback knocked out. What do you all think? Let's go. Yeah. Now, um, we talked on our last show about, well, several items. And, uh, and another podcasting co-host um, was listening. And uh, he was listening in his car. And he decided to go ahead and respond to us while driving. Um, and we are going to play his video. Hey guys, I'm listening to the Plain Stupid podcast uh, last episode. Thanks for including us in the picture. Uh, that officially means that the war is on for the memes. But I was listening to the, uh, the story about the Piper Aerostar that went down, got fueled by Jet A. And uh, I wholeheartedly agree with you um, in that no pilot would ever tell a lineman, yes, put the wrong fuel in my airplane. The just some additional points and we sort of talked about this on PTUK but, but we didn't go too, too in depth into it. It is uh, sometimes a little bit harder now with, with some of the smaller aircraft are also outfitted with turboprops so like a Meridian, a Mirage look exactly the same. You have a lot of experimentals like Lansairs it looks just like a Columbia but it's got a turboprop on front uh, so a lot of the smaller GA aircraft are getting turboprop like you guys said, it is clearly marked on there. The fuel nozzle doesn't fit. Um, it's it's um, almost impossible, because I do fuel a lot of airplanes, and it's almost impossible to get that Jet A nozzle into the into the uh, 100 low lead. So the, uh, another thing is the, um, the city FBOs. So there are more cities that are running FBOs than you would think, and... Uh, I used to live out in Clovis, and the city the city took that over because they saw how much money was taking uh, money the FBO was taking on fuel sales out there, and they can get that revenue plus the tax revenue 
Um, so my local three airports are all city airports and uh, they're run by the city. They're city linemen, city FBO operators, and as well as uh, many of the airports that I fly in. And then the last thing sort of, I, I didn't get into this in PTUK, but the fuel sump procedures. <clears throat> so after this accident, kind of went on YouTube and started looking at, can you really discern Jet A when it's mixed with with 100 low lead? And then we ran our own experiment, just like kind of following the lead of one of the YouTube guys at our local FBO there in Statesville. And we took a bucket and we took a water bottle, a clear water bottle, plastic water bottle. So we did all of the combinations of filling it with, with 100 low lead, halfway, you know, and then it's the clear blue fuel with the smell, and then put Jet A in there, and it still stayed blue. And in that little fuel tester cup, you would not, if you held that up to the light, it's a little bit lighter but you can't actually, the blue dye also dyes the Jet A. And it, you would think it separates like fuel and water, but it doesn't. It actually just mixes in there. If you look closely, there's a tiny little film, but again, on a tiny little Jet A, or, or uh, general aviation fuel tester, we weren't able to tell. And then we did it the other way, where we put Jet A in to the the plastic bottle and in the bucket so probably you know a half gallon or so and and then put the hundred low lead and you also couldn't tell so the only way we decided that you can tell the difference between jet a hundred low lead is just the evaporation so hundred low lead will, will evaporate in just you know 30 seconds or so and it takes about two to three minutes for the for the jet a to evaporate so unless you actually put your fingers on it and figure out that something's wrong and it doesn't evaporate off your fingers, um, the whole sump test is completely debunked. Water comes out great. Like it looks like a, a big snot down there in the bottom of the fuel. But uh, 100 low lead and Jet A mixed together does not show up on a fuel tester as easily as you would think. Anyway, let me go listen to the rest of the show. See you guys. Thank you, Armando, for taking the time to do that video and really good stuff there. Um, and what do you say about the the meme is on or whatever? <laughs> oh, well, yeah. you'll recall our uh, yeah the uh, artwork for the last episode. Yeah, so uh, I guess you took offense to that. Sorry, Armando. <laughs> oh, I don't see why his was the only picture that looked vaguely like himself. <laughs> Nick and we, we do have an explanation. Yeah, we do have an explanation as to how that came out, came about. Yeah, if you uh, want to know all the details about how we kind of brainstormed that uh, and how it kind of evolved into that, <laughs> just drop us a note. It, it really has nothing to do with any of our beloved. Uh, no, not at all. So, um, sorry, just the, the the short. Now, should we even go into it? No, they can. Okay. They, yeah. All right, we'll we'll let you know if you really want to know how how we it kind of morphed into uh, that artwork. So it was purely innocent, of course. It may have been alcohol fueled. <laughs> well, maybe. Yeah. Of course, it was. Yes, yeah. absolutely very yeah. innocent. All right. Um, let's see. I think we should move on. We only have well under thirty minutes 
now remaining in the show. So let's How keep. Can we get through? We're gonna. I don't know. Well, let's let's try to crack through as many as we can. Uh, five, Dave. Family question for you and private pilot license learned. Uh, this is Dave, the AMT from a major U.S. airline in Cleveland. I left some feedback a while ago about relationships between maintenance and pilots. I am messaging you today to proudly uh, share with you that I have earned my private pilot certificate. And uh, there we go. Fantastic news. Yay. And uh, let's see. It was quite the journey, and I'm extremely proud to have earned this accomplishment. The question I have for you today is about family life. I have a young family with four children, one born just a month ago. My concern with making the jump from maintenance to pilot is how does it work with your family life and how uh, was it raising children with a career field where you tend to be gone quite often? Thank you again for an amazing show and all advice you may have to offer. Fly safe, Dave. All right. Um, he wants to start with that. Yeah, I, I'll have it a pile in there. I think... Uh, when you start an aviation career, it's very much a vocation. And as much as we would all love to think we put our families first, there are times when you're going to have to uh, make um, a certain amount of adjustment and your family is going to have to uh, expect you to be missing a great deal of the time, particularly in the early years. Uh, so long as you are all prepared for that, and as long as you realize that it's not going to be like that forever, eventually you'll get senior enough uh, to be able to, um, you know, pick and choose your flights. Uh, then, you know, you'll get through those early years. But I think those early years are probably going to be pretty tough for someone who has a well-established family routine and uh, take a strong part in their everyday family activities. I cannot remember the number of birthdays and Christmases uh, where I have uh, been calling in from the other side of the world. Yeah, that's one of the uh, downsides to this job. And there are ways to manage it um, as you get more seniority, if you're working for a seniority-based airline. Uh, one of the things that uh, some folks do for airlines, uh, major airlines like uh, the one that Dana and I fly for, are to get a job in the training department. And uh, you are home a lot more that way. You have a little bit more control of your schedule. You may end up actually being away from home more working in the training department, but you are home more nights. Um, and also as you get more senior, you can, if the airplane that you're flying has the kind of trips where they only have like one day trips, like you go somewhere and back or three or four legs, and then you're back at home that night. Um, that uh, is a way to manage that as well. But when you first start off, start off as as Nick just said, uh, you're not going to have a lot of seniority, and you're going to have to you know do the best you can. And the other piece of advice I would have is that when you actually are home, don't you know put your suitcase over to the side and take off your uniform, put on your golfing clothes, and head out and go and golf for four or five hours at a time or be gone. This is when you need to be home. If you're home, be home and be a part of the family and do what you can to uh, help out your spouse or, you know, your partner and, uh, you know, do as much as you can to, uh, to be a part of the family. And I know I, I came to this late and I don't know if it was mentioned yet, but one of the tips for Dave that I would truly recommend not being a pilot and not uh, having this experience directly is there's a specific plane tales that Nick did interviewing Julie 
that really explained a lot of this. And I think that was a magnificent uh, interview and, and a wonderful inf- bunch of information. And I would really recommend that he go back and find that episode or find it in Plain Tales on the Airline Pilot Guy uh, podcast website and then listen to that. Maybe we can even locate it and put it in the show notes because I agree with you, Micah. Yes. Um, uh, Steph can locate that and tell me what the link is and I'll put it in we the show notes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Steph, you have your, your work cut out for you. Yeah, work, I work, 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 work. All right. Thank you. I hope that helped, Dave. And uh, let us know how your decision making goes. All right. Uh, let's continue on. Doug, item six, um, on Friday, September 27th, I found myself all caught up on my podcast listening. Since later in the day, my wife and I were planning on flying to Kilo Tango Victor Charlie, Cherry Capital Airport in Traverse City, Michigan, I decided to listen to the ATC feed on a live ATC, not a live, live ATC.net. During my listening, I heard the attached transmissions that kind of took me aback. I've done my best with my basic audio editing skills to stitch all the relevant transmissions together for your ease of listening. Can you comment on how something like this happens and give some insight as to what exactly happened? What factors are considered in determining which flights are more important than others? Apparently, this flight from Traverse City, Michigan to Chicago was deemed less important than some other flight. I did not envy the flight crew having to tell a plane full of passengers holding short of the departure runway that... Uh, they were not going to really leave, and they were going to have to taxi back to the uh, terminal five more hours uh, spent in the terminal before they were going to leave again. Does Dana have a twin brother that works for Air Wisconsin? <laughs> Uh, this sounds like a scenario that would happen to him. This feedback may require a guest appearance from Dispatcher Mike. Yeah, I should have gotten uh, Mike um, on the call or at least uh, given us some feedback. But Mike, if you're listening, maybe you could... Uh, uh, add to what we're going to say about this. And I think probably the best thing to do right now before I go any further is to go ahead and play this uh, liveatc.net um, excerpt and see what happened to this Air Wisconsin flight. Payne 3000, expect final 24017 and departure. Departure for Minneapolis Center 132.9, spot 1607, and I got an edict time of 1539 Zulu. All right, clear to Chicago at 5-5-3000, spec flight level 24010 minutes after departure. Departure frequency 132.9, spot 1607. Uh, yeah, 1607, and uh, edict is uh, 1539. Any updates on when that's changing? Scott's 4855, Departure clearance time for you at 2033 Zulu. 
I guess your company subbed you for that time for another aircraft or something, so you um, you can hold a position there, hold short of runway 2A, and if you want to give your company a call to um, try to sort that out, that's fine. All right, thanks for the heads up. Uh, we'll get back to you if we figure out anything and when we're ready for you to India uh, 55. Thank you. And uh, just to double check, this is uh, still Wisconsin 4855. We just changed voices here. <laughs> it's uh, 2033, correct? Wisconsin 4855, affirmative. Uh, expect departure clearance time 2033. Okay, we're just double checking, uh, you know, five hours. We're <laughs> making sure we, we got it printed out right. Okay, we will check with company and see what they say. Yeah, no problem. We double and triple check too with TMU. So yeah, just let us know what they say. I can imagine you guys double check that one too. So okay, we'll uh, we'll find out what's going on. Thanks. Okay, to save some time, uh, the whole the whole uh, recording will be in the show notes uh, if you want to listen to the entire thing. Basically, they checked with their company, and their company said, "Yeah, you you got swapped off or swapped out with another flight. Um, apparently, there was more." Uh, priority on the uh, other flight, uh, and they use their slot to get into um, O'Hare. And uh, they, it was kind of cute because they said, uh, are you ready to taxi back to the terminal again? Yeah, give me a few minutes. I need to come up with a way to explain this to my passengers who had already been delayed. And uh, so, yeah, th that happens in, this is not something the FAA does. It's the, something uh, the company does internally. And uh, dispatcher Mike or fleet manager Mike would be uh, really good at explaining how they make these kind of decisions. But uh, there are times when there is just uh, there's no easy way to say it. There's a there might be a flight that uh, is uh, is more important in the eyes of the folks that are behind the scenes in the operational control centers at the various airlines. For instance, a, perhaps a flight that has a lot more passengers and maybe a great percentage of these passengers are connecting to international flights leaving Chicago O'Hare. And in that case, the much uh, lower number of or fewer passengers on the Air Wisconsin flight, um, you know, they, they look at all these things, the connections and international connections and that kind of thing. And they just make the decision that, you know, we hate to do it, but we have to give priority to this other flight. So it does happen every, every now and then. So, um, Anything to add, uh, Nick? It's just a miserable job to try and explain that to your passengers, so I feel mm -hmm. for the guy. Yeah, absolutely. Part of being the captain. Yep. And, of... and Jeff, you explained it really well. We actually at, at ACME have an uh, air traffic control desk that will actually negotiate and figure out all that that data that would you know it's what Mike would tell us. Um, and they do exactly what you what you said. They go ahead and, and analyze what the best uh, economic solution to the problem is. And sometimes uh, the regionals end up the short end of the stick on that one. Yeah. And, and Hello. The, yeah. Hello. Hello. Is that you? Hello. <laughs> I don't believe it. Hello's <laughs> taking phone calls in the toilet. <laughs> Hillel, yes, we did install a phone in the toilet. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can use it while we're still recording the show. Okay? So just hang on. Just hang out there. Okay. We'll be back with you in just a few minutes. Okay? The show's almost over. Okay. No, you can't use my towel. Thank you. Bye. Well, that, like, vintage 90s uh, cordless phone you got there. You like I'm that? surprised you pull up the antenna. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, it works. Leave me alone.
I, I don't have. Can you uh, still I, find batteries I'm in not that a, thing? I'm not a high priority in this house. I am Can in the dungeon. Can you still right find now. batteries to that? I don't know. When it when it stops charging, then I'll just throw it away and uh, in a in a green way, of course. Okay. Um, so, well, looks like this is going to be the last one. A whole bunch of really really good feedback that uh, in the folder here that uh, we're not going to be able to get to today. But uh, you know what we'll do? We'll move it to the next one, and hopefully we'll be able to tackle all of the ones we weren't able to get to today on our next show. Uh, this uh, item 17 from Danny. Uh, just a quick hello from the UK. I've been listening for about a year, and I love the shows. Part of my essential driving listening material for my journeys between Cardiff and Devon once a week. I found your amusement at the name Effingham highly entertaining and thought you might also find it amusing that the company I own is called, okay, you ready for this one? Effing Technology. Yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Danny, that's, that's amazing. It seemed like a good idea at the time. <laughs> and I called it that because that's what a lot of UK people spent their time saying when computers didn't work. <laughs> Or don't work. Perfect. Keep up the great work, guys and gals. Regards, Danny. He's the managing director at Effing Technology Limited. <laughs> <laughs> so, Danny, I think I've I said that several times today, actually. Have Just, you? You know, in reference to that city in uh, the UK? No, in reference to technology. Oh, at work. technology. Effing <laughs> yeah. uh, technology. By the way, Effing is uh, originated in the late Stone Age, and it got its name from a Saxon noble called uh, Afing, A-E-F-F-I-N-G, who built his ham or house in an area now known as Effingham. Oh, I thought it was this, uh, the, this, the big giant stone that he dropped on his foot and he went, Effing stone! <laughs> he probably did that too. Yeah. Oh, well. <laughs> Okay, with that, um, sadly, we have to leave you for this week, and uh, we look forward to seeing you and uh, hearing from you uh, between now and the next show. And uh, let's see, we have a great website where you can get a lot of information about uh, the uh, the show, the crew, the uh, community, um, all of the podcasts, all the way back to episode number one are there. Um Here's a tip, though. Instead of going to the podcast uh, page and then just going, you know, page uh, another page back, another page back, it just takes a lot of time. If you're looking for a specific episode, let's say episode one, we do have a search function on the uh, top menu there if you're viewing from a tablet or a browser uh, on a desktop or a, a laptop. So please use that uh, search function. And you can do the same thing with the phones, actually, even though you don't see the little search, the magnifying glass uh, on Google or Bing or whatever search engine you use. Uh, you can just put in APG001 and guess what? We'll show up in the uh, search results. So that's another way to find the older shows. Still haven't figured out a way to you know create a separate feed that has all of the uh, shows on it, but uh, we're still working on it. And uh, this gin is nice, is it? Oh, he's already. This gin is lovely. Thank you, Stefan. I'm really enjoying this. Sweet. All right. Yeah. Um, we are also on the social meds, uh, Steph. Social meds. Head on over to twitter.com. You can find us there under the handle at APG Crew. All of our individual Twitter information is tagged to the top of that page, um, or pinned, I should say. Uh, you can interact with us there in short form. For longer form, you can head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guide. And we do hope to see you on the social meds. 
And if you want to go real long form, or really long form, you can head over to Slack. And uh, Hillel is the guy that kind of set that up and manages it. And uh, it. And hang on a second. Let me... Yeah, hello. It's uh, hello. Hello, it's time. Sorry, Jeff. I might have used all your skin lotion. Mm. <laughs> all right. Would you please tell everybody about Slack? APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas. We suggest episode and plain tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel, for that. And um, you can go ahead and go back to the bathroom. And with that, I think it's time to end our show. Again, we look forward to being with you next week. Thanks, everybody, in the chat room for being there for us and providing entertainment. And thank you to Liz, our producer, for helping us put all this stuff together before and after. And with that, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Happy birthday, Mom. Shalom from Portland, Maine. Yeah, he's up in the sky. It's the airline pilot guy. Good day. Such a good, good pilot Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall I got no friends Cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline pilot guy I fly America Airline pilot guy